So yeah, today's movie, Akira, alright, as it's also known, Canada, Tetsuo, the movie. <laughs> Canada, the first touch of Canada that I got in my life was from an internet forum regarding Guns N' Roses. There was this absolutely annoying guy with the nickname Canada, and that's all I knew about Canada. It's kind of a fitting seeing how annoying Canada is in, in yeah. Akira. Yeah, fitting name. Yeah, Canada. staying through to it. Yeah, true internet troll he was. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Cory. He's Henrik. Uh, actually, this is our first anime, so Kampai. Kampai. Who are we? I'm Finnish. Henrik is Finnish. We started this podcast because I thought that there wasn't enough podcasts that talk about films. So here we are. Well, to be exact, I thought that there wasn't enough film podcasts that, that actually have studied enough of the film and uh, I have to admit that for this podcast episode I could have studied a little bit more even because there's a 2000 plus page manga that this is based on. Well that is kind of the running theme here here on this podcast that most of the cases you manage to pick films that would actually require like years of, of studying before tackling the film and its running themes. Because you refuse to suggest movies for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I have my alibi already covered here. <laughs> yeah, well, this start of the year is still going to be about the classics, the films that we cannot not be covering in this podcast. I think Akira is one of them. Akira most definitely is one of them. Often held as... One of the great, if not the greatest anime ever made. So it, it would be kind of a scene if we would never even touch Akira. That being said, there still are a bunch of anime films that fall into the exact same category. And which we should look upon on the later episodes. Like Coast in the Cell, for example. There is that. There is that. Then again, there is so many films that we should cover, Henrik, that I think the human life is just not quite enough for this task that we have set ourselves for covering. You know, there's too many good films and bad films. I would love to talk about bad films for change later on. That would be also, you know, refreshing return back to form for us. <laughs> Seeing how one of the very first episodes we made, well, not the first, but definitely in the early stages of the podcast were the Halloween sequels, which... Ooh, boy! Yeah, <clears throat> we keep talking about those because that was really the birth of this podcast. We did Rear Window, we did The Big Lebowski, and then we jumped into doing the whole Halloween franchise, and... Yeah, yeah, that, then we, we made, did Gazillion Halloween f movies. <laughs> yeah, it was a good training period. Yeah, it was to test also our ability to stick with it, with the same subject till the very end, through the mud. Yeah, it, it most definitely was a trial by fire. <laughs> so, 
So if you haven't figured it out yet, yes, we cover all kinds of films. I have a media background and Henrik is in an art university. And that is why you should tune in. And because of Henrik's amazing chest quality in this podcast, which is still much better than mine. And most of all, because I'm a sad and pathetic loner who desperately needs to feel that he is contributing something to the society. Well, you definitely have seen a lot of films. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what my mom keeps telling me also. (laughs) I I can tell it when we have been recording these episodes and... I am honestly surprised by his ability to... But you have the ability to talk about the wide variety of films around the film that we are every week talking about. And which constantly kind of surprises me. So, yeah, definitely we have the right guy in this podcast. Yeah, it's it's the situation where you can barely remember your own name. You can't remember how basic math works and you can't remember capital of your own homeland. But you sure as shit can remember the weird, sloggy 80s horror film that no one has ever seen. <laughs> that, that, that's the life choices of a champion. Sometimes I think about it as well, because I have in my heyday, so to speak, films-wise, I have watched quite a bunch of them in a relatively short amount of time. And then I just think... What do I do with all this knowledge? I could have been reading about the American Civil War or could have read about uh, Hiroshima or <laughs> something else. You could, could have tried to acquire valuable life skills all this time. Yeah, it's the state where we, Henrik, kind of live in the fantasy world all the time or most yeah. of the time. Yeah, yeah. But that just goes to show you that, you know, becoming a pathetic man-child is actually hard work. (laughs) Akira, or Akira, made in 1988, based in the manga that started in 1982 and was finished in 1990. So it took eight years to complete. Eight years, ladies and gentlemen. Over 2,000 pages, made by this very influential character... Katsuhiro Otomo. Who also has written and directed this adaptation to anime. And yeah, well, this film has been extremely influential to to cinema and sci-fi. And uh, this has been listed as one of the greatest animated films and sci-fi films ever made. It's also a kind of a landmark in Japanese animation. You can definitely tell that the quality is on the table. Nine million dollars was the budget. This film has influenced countless of other films, music, TV, video games, and other mediums of art and entertainment. And still, this is my first time watching this film. What do you say, Henrik? I say that you're a filthy heretic. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that we have discussed in the past, that I have been a filthy heretic while Henrik has been the guy who has also swallowed full all the... All the um mainstream films, whereas I have been uh, avoiding them for the most of my life. Only now, in the recent years, I've been catching up with all the great classics. Yeah, well, you know, that's always a good reason to create a running film podcast, so that you can catch up all the (laughs) the classics. Yeah, 
Well, once we get into this weird hippie shit from the 70s regarding space aliens and all the horror from 70s and 80s, I'll, I'll be of much more use. But what was your experience with the film? Or what's your history with it? Because I don't have one. I originally saw this somewhere around 90s. Could it be 97 or somewhere along that ballpark when I... By accident came across the Manga Entertainment's VHS release in the local library. That was my first ever experience with anime at all. Uh-huh. It Yeah, I, I just, you know, noticed that there was this animated feature film that had a young guy with a was the laser rifle in his hands. Mm. And it looked kind of interesting, so I just, you know, watched it then and there. I hated it, didn't like it at all. I was like, oh, this was shit. Uh, then, some years after that, I started to read the manga, which was released in Finland by Like Publishing, uh, and it took fucking 11 years for them to actually have the whole run published in Finland. The final volume being coming out in 2006. <laughs> And to, to add insult to injury, you, you know how Akira, the original manga, is only six volumes. Yeah. yeah, well, in Finland, there is this extremely nice habit of our publishing houses to take a large book and cut it in half. You know, double the number of issues. So, whereas Japanese and American audiences could get Akira... The full story in six volumes in Finland it took fucking twelve. So that means twelve comic books you have to buy to read through the entire story. It took eleven years for them to finally actually have it all printed out to finish market and during that time even the goddamn size and the style of the albums changed. So you start Akira in Finland when you're twelve and you end it at age 24 when you're already working your butt off and maybe you have kind of outgrown manga. There are those people who do not watch or read manga when they get to the adult phase. Yeah, I mean that's how being an otaku and manga enthusiast or any kind of a literary enthusiast in Finland works because this is something that happens also in books like the Wheel of Time series which also have been one novel has been cut in half when it comes to Finnish market. I would say in three parts in worst cases. Mm. But but the situation is like that, you know, you start reading Akira when you are a kid, and then you reach those life goals, those achievements in life, like getting out of high school, getting a job, finding a woman, getting a wife, having children, finally finishing reading Akira. I mean, like that, That's how it works in Finland. Yeah just don't understand. It doesn't take 12 years to translate those pages. No, it fucking doesn't. I mean, it was out in America and in US, you know, I don't know, almost guess a decade before like fucking managed to finish the publication run in Finland. Huh. But but that's the publications in Finland for you. Wonderful. I don't know if you took notes or if you have thought about this very thoroughly, but I don't care because we're a pretty free-flowing podcast and sometimes we drive or we push each other's 
under the bus in this podcast, especially you, Hendrik. So, <laughs> what is Akira influenced by? And uh, I definitely had Blade Runner in my mind when I looked at the color palette of this film and the general futuristic vibe, so Blade Runner is definitely one of them. I found note also in a Guardian's article by Felim O'Neill that 2001 A Space Odyssey could have been one of their influences as well. Your thoughts, Henrik? I've always... or what has influenced Akira is, is a question that I, to my great shame, have never asked from myself. I've always looked just what Western uh, properties have been influenced by Akira. Yeah, but now that you mention it, I... Yeah, I can see... Well, I can see both Blade Runner and Space Odyssey partly being uh, sources of inspiration to Akira. Akira, of course, is completely its own beast, beast and is very different from Space Odyssey and Blade Runner in its story and in its themes, but there are, now that you say it, there are similarities between Akira and, for example, Space Odyssey, like, in a way, how they both end in one of the main characters becoming something greater, or being hinted as becoming something greater. What films have been influenced by Akira? And, well, this is kind of a interesting point, because there is this mad scientist point and uh, somebody doing experiments on somebody and then the someone with these superpowers escapes and uses those powers and goes out of control. I mean, we've seen this millions of times, probably even before Akira. But if you want well, to draw parallels, Stranger Things, yeah. And by that notion, you could also say E.T. You could say The Matrix. Definitely The Matrix. Yep. Well, regarding Akira... As an inspiration, there has also been the video games The Snatcher and Metal Gear Solid. And, and yeah, these definitely came to my mind as well when I was thinking about this film. And I'm not sure why, but there are these some supernatural big robotic beasts that might draw parallels. I'm not exactly sure why I made the connection in my mind, but there is something. Yeah, yeah the case with Akira is, is that, especially the film... Everybody always talks about the film and the manga is kind of a side note that you bring up simply because you have to. But with the original anime, it has been so influential that pretty much fucking everybody mentions the anime as as one of the great influences he or she has had in their lives. To a point where, well, almost Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein could make the case that, you know, it's been influenced by Akira at this point. <laughs> There's also the Polish games company DC Project that is working on a new game called Cyberpunk 2077. And it's an upcoming game, not yet released, and has some influences from Akira. Yeah, no surprising since Cyberpunk itself was influenced by Akira. <laughs> yeah, or almost created by Akira. Would you go that far? Not that far. I mean, Cyberpunk still is the unfortunate franchise to be to be the the franchise that Cyberpunk franchise, which combines Cyberpunk and elves and orcs and fucking dragons and you know 
Your average everyday hobbits. <laughs> yeah, that's the huge, the major twist in Cyberpunk franchise, that it combines Cyberpunk sci-fi and the fantasy literature. And there's references made to Kill Bill, not exactly off the hook, sure how that was made. And then there is The Dark Knight. Okay, to talk about the manga. In the manga, there is the clear notion made about the Third World War. The background is given about this and it's explained that the next Olympics are planned to be held in the crater where the bomb hit. I do not find this reference in the film. It just could be that I was sleeping too much. It's not in the film. Okay. Like they, they do mention the Third World War extremely quickly. Like it's one line of yeah. text. And that's it. When it comes to reopening the Olympic Stadium for the next X Games, that would be held pretty close to the events of the story. That topic in no way is touched in the film itself. It's it's only in manga. It's one of those many things that are yeah. explained in the manga and then cut off from the anime. Yeah, there are these things that probably a lot of these things that were left unexplained in the film. Maybe it was a, more of a mistake. Maybe people thought that well, it was clear for the filmmakers, so they didn't repeat these points. But really, just coming from anime, just watching anime first, then coming to manga, it was all really messy and, uh, and really confusing for me at first. And there are a lot of subplots in the film that might have been able to be left out, like some of the bar scenes. You know, it, I don't think it contributes much of anything, but it's there, and as talked ad nauseum, there is the problem when you have like a long manga, like 2000 page manga and then you try to adapt it to a film and you try to take a little bit of this and that and show as much of those elements in the original and it's a tough call. It's a tough call to try to, you know, put it all on the screen. Yeah, and on top of that, the whole Akira manga film adaptation thing is kind of a curious case on its own right. Since, like you mentioned, the manga is is over 2,000 pages long. It's a hell of a lot of material, you know, try to dense into one film. So obviously some cuts have to be made, but in Akira's case there is also the situation where, which happened repeatedly in these anime adaptations of a beloved manga, is that that when the adaptation process starts, the manga is not yet finished. And that was also the case in, in Akira. The manga was still ongoing when they made the film. And that creates this weird situation where originally the anime is adapting the manga and taking influences from the manga, but on the later stages, the manga starts to take influences from the anime. So they kind of give back and forth to each other throughout the overall production line of the story of Akira. In the end, the film we are now covering only covers something like the first volume of the manga and half of the final volume. And even that is kind of a rough estimate because there is a shit ton of stuff already happening in the first volume that are being left out from the film. Yeah. It's still directed and written by the same guy who did the manga, so I think it's exactly what he wanted to do, and 
as we know, as these things play out a little bit differently, you have to emphasize different things, make a little shortcuts in films. You know, I don't have a problem per se that the versions differ differ so much. They're I... kind, of, kind of their own universes, right? I, on the other hand, I have a small problem with that because I, I have to point out that, you know... Being different from the source material is not automatically a bad thing. Often I even, you know, embrace and value that. The cases where the film adaptation more or less takes influence from the body of work that has come before it and tries to use that body of work to tell its own story. I like that in film adaptations. Most of the time there are exceptions where I think that the mark has been missed so dreadfully that it would have been better to just do a straight adaptation. But even with that in mind, for me, the original manga is so kind of a... so grandiose, so big, and it's it, it has so many themes and so many storylines that now when they try to condense it to, to our anime feature film, I, I feel that too much has been left out to a point where that cutting stuff out from the film for me it creates structural problems within the film okay i didn't see it like that i do admit that it was great to read the manga and you know get more perspective on what the hell is happening in the film so yeah and yeah that's what that's a problem that arises for sure and that is that is Precisely the problem that I have with the anime version of Akira. Yeah. Because so much of what is going on and what the, what all these players in the story are actually trying to achieve and what is happening all together is left extremely vague and unexplained in the film version. Yeah. And then conversely, I was confused with the manga because the film does a different ending pretty much completely and... In the manga, you have a lot of these lines where the colonel or somebody else is saying, like, quote, somebody is trying to awaken Akira or something of to that effect. And there is talk about controlling Akira and you have no idea what Akira can do. And then I was thinking back on the film, do they have anything like these lines in the film? And no, no, they do not because it doesn't make sense. Because in the manga, actually, the Akira is an appearing character, whereas in the film it's just a bunch of samples. Well, there, there is... I mean, the subject matter is being touched in the film also, in, in a way that apparently Akira still holds some kind of power, even though Akira has been reduced into a bunch of scientific sample slides by the military, since the military scientist is still kind of following the psychic pattern of Akira and comparing that to Tetsuo's psychic pattern and the kids go to great lengths to stop Tetsuo from finding Akira so that to prevent that Akira won't be woken up. And in the end, Tetsuo finds Akira, which turns out to be a bunch of test samples at this point, but then the psychic kids come together and somehow recreate the astral form of Akira. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole control Akira as a source of power and there being being this great game 
around Akira, it is still in the anime. But, well, in the manga, Akira himself does actually show up as a major physical figure. Like, he, he comes to flesh in the manga. And that is one of the many aspects that are completely lost in the anime adaptation. Yeah, you could even say that the conclusion in the film is a, a slight letdown because you wait to see Akira, then you think about the whole rewatching value once it has been revealed that Akira is now nothing more or less than just samples and a like a five second vision or whatever it is in the film. It's that five second vision and it's one one glimpse during a flashback and that's all Akira you get in Akira. Yeah. <laughs> well Akira is an actual supernaturally talented boy who is crowned as the leader of a new empire which is basically lacking completely in the film. This is a huge storyline in the manga, the Great Tokyo Empire. And it's Lord Akira in the West versus Lady Miyako, number 19, as she is called, in the East. Yeah, it's, it's, once again, it's touched upon very slightly in the anime version, where there is shown, where the Akira cult is being shown to appear in exactly two or three scenes in the anime. This is the same card that shows up pretty early on in the manga and is one of the kind of a major background players in the story. And now in the film adaptation, they are quickly shown as street screaming lunatics and then they are quickly disposed of. And that's all you get about the Lord Akira. Yeah, and interestingly, the leader, Lady Miyako, is also reduced in the film to a protester who just gets killed in the pretty much the first 30 seconds, or the only 30 seconds that you see of her. And that's it, and she's a very central character in the manga. So yeah, as mentioned, many differences. Uh, There are some groundbreaking features in the film, in the sense that they really had a pretty huge budget, the biggest budget for anime at the time, and they were not limited to mechanical characters, lips or mouth movements this time. They were actually synced with the speech, and unlike in earlier productions, it was done like in the West, or, well, at least in the West, it was done in in the way that you record the lines first, and then you animate the lip movements which makes sense. So we have that kind of, I suppose, unconventional way of doing it at the time. There's a lot of detail in this film, and it all contributes to that. Otomo has been claimed to have filled (laughs) 2,000 pages of notebooks for the anime adaptation. He had various ideas, finally trimmed it down to uh, 738 pages. And he had a lot of difficulty completing the manga, Otomo has said that the inspiration for the conclusion is coming from a conversation that he and Alejandro Jodorowsky had in 1990. But it's interesting that this is, once again, Henrik, not like the ideal way to do this anime, right? I mean, you are six years into your manga, and then you punch out 
the anime when you have two years left of the manga to do? Why couldn't you wait two years? Maybe it could have been a more fulfilling project. Yeah, well, first of all, this is kind of a, a running habit when it comes to anime adaptations, where this occurs more times than you would easily believe. This is something that happened also in Full Metal Alchemist, in Helsing, and other these widely known anime, especially in anime TV series, this is something that often happens, where they start the adaptation process when the story is still ongoing, and then because the manga kind of runs out middle way of the process, they have to start their own storylines, which in the end typically end up in the result where you first get the first anime adaptation, which ends up having its own storyline, then the manga finishes giving you another storyline, and then they make second anime adaptation now of that finished manga. And you get, like with, you know, Full Metal Alchemist, you have two different anime adaptations of the story and the manga. Yeah, and this can be come down to, you know, fans and pushing out the anime adaptation at the point when the hype is going on. With Akira's case, there is also may have been affected by the fact that when it was released in the 80s, the anime was kind of a making name for itself in Japan. That the generation that had, as a kid, grown up with anime, were now animators and directors of the anime features. This gave them history with the art form, with anime itself, and gave them kind of a visions about how they would like to break the norms and break new grounds with the media. And at the same time, there was also a financial boom going on in Japan, which meant that more wealth was going around the circles, and because of this, you know, more money was also put into the anime business. You could get higher budgets for your animated features during this time period, and this is often mentioned as the golden age of anime. That that time period when anime was on its most crazy, when the budgets were at their highest, and you could do visually very weird and extreme or extremely beautiful animations, and you could finally make adult anime stories, and all this has typically been kind of given out to this one time period, the golden age. This is when it started. And this was when the anime was on its most experimental, in a sense. So that made I might also tie into why Otomo felt that he had to push the anime adaptation out of the gates now, during this time, and not wait for, you know, the, the next two years for him to finish the manga. Because now he could get crazy-ass budget to make his kind of a magnum opus anime feature film, and if he would would have waited, it could be that he wouldn't have been able to get that kind of money anymore. And it's understandable decision also business-wise, like, you have still not published all of your manga, so there is this anticipation and people are interested to see the final resolution which they are expecting to see on the film. Well, they get one version there, 
and then in order to push the manga ahead uh, with a certain kind of a interest level still, I think you kind of have to do a different ending for the manga as well now. Yeah, and also when thinking globally, because Akira was one of the groundbreakers which brought anime and with with anime also manga into the West, and most notably to US. What is the synopsis of Akira, Henrik? You want to do this? Uh, <laughs> how, how to condense it? I mean, we, we are talking about two-hour film that is already too condensed for its own right. Yeah. But, but on its heart, Akira is, is a growing up tale of being a teenager. Extremely heartwarming one. Yeah, I mean, people do come together and find new dimensions from themselves. Literally. Yeah, literally, in Tetsuo's case. <laughs> well, I would condense it as there's a Canada who leads a vigilante group called Capsules. Their rivals are the clowns. There's a lot of civil warish tension in the city. The army does a coup d'etat. It just so happens that the army is in possession of something that started the World War III and it has been kept under wraps. Now it's breaking out because of the army's experimentations on another person, which gets information that still the main experiment that started the World War III is still buried under a new stadium and once ducking out from there, the resolution would be extremely grave, except it isn't, as we find out. And the main antagonist ends up being the, well, the target of the latest experiments. And to give further spoilers, then some weird shit happens with a light that sucks everything in it, created by Akira, I believe. And if you want to go through certain sources, it's apparently a creation of a new universe and all that, but maybe we can get to that later. Oh my god. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Something like that. Something like that. It's a film where a bunch of shit happens and a lot of shit is never explained. (laughs) Cast of characters. In the Japanese version, Canada is played by Mitsuo Iwata, a famous voice actor and singer. Then there is Takashi, played by Nozomu Sasaki, also a famous voice actor and singer. Takashi is the small freak kid. Then Masaru is the second freak kid in flying apparatus. Then there's the third freak kid, Kyoko, a glass ceiling bed freak kid. Then there is the lady Miyako, the protester at the end of the film, which is only a protester at the end of this film and not the resistance movement, as in the manga. Then there is uh, Chiyoko, which I believe only appears in the manga. It's a f- kind of a obese, angry-looking lady. Then there is Kaori girlfriend of Tetsuo, then there is Kei, girlfriend of Kaneda, and of course we have also the Tetsuo, who is in possession of this magic power, friend of Kaneda. Did I miss something? You missed all the American voice actors. Sure. Do you have something on those? (laughs) Well, uh, not that much, since I typically don't follow the American anime voice actor scene that closely. Like, if you would have to highlight, like, I don't know, one example of the American cast, the easiest would be 
Cam Clark, who has also done voice acting in the Metal Gear Solid as Liquid Snake. Ah. And, and for example, in other video game Mass Effect. Well, as mentioned prior, it does seem like the film tries to cramp in as much of the manga as possible, and the film overall is rich in detail, story, and subplots, in good and bad. And Akira seems to be like a concept where a Hollywood movie-influenced kid is having fun with fantastical storylines and uh, straight-out exuberant psychic shit and explosions. And that's okay, that this is more of like a visual fiesta, more than an actual, you know, story or how to make some kind of a philosophic point. Would you agree? Um, I would not agree with that sentiment, but I can see where you come to that conclusion. Akira is extremely visual experience, and a lot of its production budget has went to make the film as visually appealing as possible. I I would say that visuals would have been the area that took most money out of the budget. But I still wouldn't make the claim that Akira somehow does not have philosophical touching points or story. It does have huge amounts of story. Most definitely. Yeah, it just happens to handle telling that story a bit problematically at times. Most notably on the second half of the film. Once again, it's what you're looking for here. But at best, I think Akira excels in the visuals. But most definitely, you can feel it when you start watching this film, that there's extremely... A lot of detail was being yeah. paid at the plot. Yeah. When it comes to details and plot, it is the case where the manga just handles it so much better. Yeah. The plot details. However, when it comes to visual details, that is something where Akira is pretty much one of its kind. Like, the amount of visuals put to the screen is absolutely amazing. It's it, it's kind of a record-breaking on its own right. And the visuals, I would say, most notably are the part why so many filmmakers have been influenced by Akira and why Akira is so well-remembered anime film. Because the visuals are absolutely magnificent in Akira. Akira has uh, has a groundbreaking number of animated frames, and they have animated even the smallest details. Like, very early on in the film when Tetsuo ends up in the motorcycle accident, and he's lying on his back on the ground, and the camera kind of zooms into uh, Tetsuo as he's lying there and looking at the weird psychic kid, that whole zooming in, Instead of doing it like how they typically do it, where they just, you know, enlarge the image slowly to create the illusion of zooming in, in Akira's case they have actually animated that zoom, the whole effect. When you look at the crown where Tetsuo is laying on his back, you know, you can see that it has been animated. It has been drawn frame by frame, and... Another example of this is usage of color throughout the film, where the animators in total ended up using 327 colors, and that includes 50 colors which they 
created specifically for this film, including a type of red which is called uh, known as Akira red. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. you can kind of, uh, you know, knowing that, you can very well see where that budget went. You can, and this is uh, very early on for something computer-assisted, and there are some elements that have been made with the assistance of computer. For example, the lighting has been enhanced with a computer, and it's a bit unclear to me where other computer enhancement went, but there is that. The film starts with the capsules fighting the other gang called the clowns, and they fight with the motorbikes. There's one guy running with the kid, and the guy is injured, the guy shoots the dogs, and the guy gets shot. Kid destroys the whole perimeter with his scream. We are already kicked into this pretty schizo music world of Akira. This haunting uh, sounds like, however it is, like tanta, tanta. It's a very rememberable soundtrack to be sure. It's the song which actually, if you listen closely, the background also says Canada. But yeah, but it, it, that's a different different track. There's also that. But anyway, when the shooting of the dogs happens on the alleyway, there's this tanta tanta. Yeah, yeah, that part. I was reminiscing the that moment when they start their chase after the clowns. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. This it's even in the goddamn music. It it's even the goddamn music. <laughs> I guess there would be something that you could read into, you know, soundtrack and the lyrics, or the lyrics that goes behind the soundtracks, but I'm not sure about that. Watching this film, I'm I'm still kind of uncertain on what was the name of the two main characters of the film. Yeah, generally there is chaos, war in the streets. To explain what is the reason for the war in the streets, well, as mentioned previously, there is the government entity, and then there is the army entity that is gaining more and more power and then there is like gangs on the streets that they want to take control of Akira by themselves or something like that it's never fucking explained in the film like like there there is million conflicts going on on the streets simultaneously and you only get kind of an explanation to one of them like uh, the capsules are hunting the clowns and their rivalry is never explained. Right. In the anime, it's just motorcycle gang violence that happens. Right. And then there are two fucking riots. The first one, maybe, sort of, gets an explanation when the newscaster mentions that the group rioting are the unemployed. And from that, you can kind of read that they are rioting because they are unemployed. So they, that's their motive. But then there there is the notion that there is also a student protest going on on the streets at the same goddamn fucking time, and nobody ever actually mentions why the students are protesting. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's one of the many ways how plot points and background info that is given to you in manga is absent in the anime. Yeah. Also, the, the whole government military intrigue that is going on behind the scenes and the political figures fighting over controlling Akira or fighting them between themselves is something that is never that much touched upon in the anime. You are being shown 
couple of times that this fight is going on and there is the coup d'etat and all these attempts but you are never actually been told what is each party's end game why are they fighting between each other so fiercely yeah why the general later on in the film has to use military power to oppose the government well all in all you get the idea that there's a lot of chaos going on and then there are this is the introduction of one of these weird kids with the old man's features and lines and tetsuo one of the gang members in the capsules group Capsules gang crashes with the kid Takashi and I believe this is completely unintentional it's just that the guy that is trying to protect Takashi freaking dies and then the kid Takashi runs away just happens to be on the highway and causes the accident between Tetsuo and Takashi and hence when they come to collect Takashi they decide okay this Tetsuo guy seems like a cool kind of person to experiment on so they just take him away to a special hospital for some experiments yeah it's completely freak accident and the government kind of jumps into conclusions at this point because they find takashi on the scene and there is also the injured tetsuo and you can kind of try to count together one and one on the situation but they don't At this point yet, they don't get any readings out of Tetsuo uh, or anything like that that would signify to the government that Tetsuo in any way is special and not just your average teenage punk who has been in a motorcycle accident. So this now found interest in Tetsuo and making sure that you bring Tetsuo with you to your secret experiment military hospital is kind of a on a point decision that the general simply makes. Looks like they are short on test subjects, so they just pick up a random guy and somehow, at the same time, they have the scientist end of the army group to take him to the laboratory right then and there. But yeah, but it's also, there's so many loose ends for me, Henrik here, for example. Why is this guy protecting Takashi in the beginning? Why are they running away? Why are they not in the lab? Is this guy trying to take him out of the lab? Who knows what's the whole deal here? Yeah, you you get pieces of the answer. If you pay extremely close eye to the dialogue going on during the film. Like the, this is where, where the condensing of this main story kind of once again comes into a play because... The first half of the film is extremely full of plot to a point where... A lot of nuances are the type of you blink and you miss it type yeah. of cases. And this whole whole incident actually is that kind. Since the fact that the dude escorting Takashi is part of the resistance, the freedom fighters, is brought in only in one line later on of the film. And the fact that the kid has been kidnapped from the military is also just one line of dialogue in the film. And even with those clues, you never actually get the whole image on what is the resistance all about, who they even are, and what are they aiming to do in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You are given the answer that the dude escorting Takashi in the opening of the film has been under the image that Takashi would be Akira. So they are trying to get their hands 
on Akira. And they thought that they had hijacked Akira from the military. But you're never ever told in the film what the fuck they are about to do once they get Akira. And why they want Akira. Absolutely. Then it's basically cutting into the Capsules team and Canada or Canada when Canada is playing stupid to get out of the police interrogation. And at this point, Canada gets out of the situation and also rescues a girl from the police office. Um, she's called Kay, right? Yep. The pattern of Tetsuo versus Akira compared by the scientists discussing with the colonels happens as well. This is kind of a weird, but this circle of waves is representing the power that Akira versus Tetsuo have. And this was kind of, I understood it only on, on the second viewing somehow. But also when the, I watched the Japanese dubbed, you know, the Japanese version first. And there it's it seems really condensed because you have to keep your eye on the running subtitles and you don't understand a word about what they're saying. And it's running on like a train, as mentioned. And that it is. While they get out of the police station and they see the explosion in the background, apparently coming from the police station where a grenade goes off, or is that it? Yeah, guess so. Yeah, well, some kind of explosion does go off. Everything goes off in this film. Yeah, except me watching it. Yeah, there's that. Still waiting for the hentai episode. Yep. But it seems that half-naked Tetsuo is in the possession of the scientists at this moment and they are doing experiments and checking out how he's doing and they're checking his wave which grows ever stronger throughout this film there's some scenes in the laundry and then somehow Tetsuo and Kaori meet outside in the evening Tetsuo is complaining about his headache and Tetsuo just does the random thing that everybody should do and steals Kaneda's motorcycle which lands him into trouble instantly because it seems that the clowns see and recognize this bike and they are out to take revenge on Kaneda, but it's Tetsuo and, well, it doesn't matter because they're in the same gang and he gets pretty severely beaten up. And Kaori also is uh, almost being raped, so definitely not a cartoon or animation for the kids out there. That said, though, many kids have experienced this film. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, it, there are the only tits on the entire film, and it's it's a violent rape scene or or something that is almost violent rape scene. Yes, indeed. But yeah, the adult subject matter in Akira is kind of a surprising, and I would dare yeah. to say even phenomenal on its own right. I mean, this most notably when you stop and think about what you are looking at is adult animation. And I, I'm not now meaning, you know, tentacle rape and extreme violence, but, but the subject matters that are at play in the given scenes, like, for example, rape and the kind of a weird transhumanism and the whole body horror aspect that comes into play on the later half of the film. It's, you know, that that's all adult stuff. Yeah, I... Definitely noticed being surprised looking at those pair of uh, boobs in this film, which is yeah, followed... I too because they they come kind of extremely out of nowhere. Yeah, but which is followed by Tetsuo, I suppose, already being under the spell of his experiments because he's being so defensive 
and of offensive against Canada. He says that he doesn't need any help from you. He could have handled the situation by himself, which is followed by all of his weird visions and vistas of Akira and his insights coming out and them putting them back in. And, and these feelings just grow stronger and stronger as the film goes further. I mean, if we go a little bit further and I think about the scene where he is in the scientific building, which is about to collapse because of Tetsuo, and Kaneda is there to try to rescue him from them. I mean, that is still a moment where everything could have gone right. And But Tetsuo is just saying that he doesn't need any help and go away. And I think Kaneda was being almost nice in that situation. Kaneda quite often in the film is trying to be nice to Tetsuo, hankering all the way back to their childhood when they first meet. Yep. And that's one of the main points that drives forward the later on rivalry between Canada and Tetsuo, where Tetsuo feels kind of humiliated by the fact that Canada is always there to protect and save him in these situations and feels somehow that he's a, he's a lesser of a person because of that. Yeah. But of course the whole rivalry between the two is something that is touched upon much better in the manga. But this scene just ends up by the lab rats taking Tetsuo back once again. He has still not gathered enough power to resist them and perhaps for the better in his situation. He's taken away. I guess this would also, you know, be as good as any situation to take the cat out of the pack and mention the many dubs of this film. Go ahead. Because, uh, goddamn, if not the whole dubbing culture around Akira is kind of a baffling nightmare on its own right. Because the film that I'm going on with myself here is 2001 digitally remastered version of the film, which has a completely new dub track for the American audiences. Yes, these are 2001 Pioneer version. The first one was uh, 1988 English dub from Streamline, which is the inferior one in your opinion. And then there is, of course, the original Japanese track. Yup. And this is kind of an interesting subject matter when it comes to this film. Which dub is the best? Because there is notable rivalry between the two American dubs. When Pioneer's dub was released, it became the dominant dub in Akira to a point where, as far as I've understood, these days, if, if you go to a theater showing of Akira in America, you most likely are getting the Pioneer's version of the dub track, the new dub. And to some fans, this for some reason is an unforgivable sin and they, it goes as far as to a point where they even refuse to watch the movie if it has the Pioneer's dub track. And I, for the life of me, can't understand why the fuck that is, because I think that Streamline's version is goddamn horrendous. I myself went through the Japanese track, and then I went through the English 1988 Streamline track, and I could already notice, well, at least between the Japanese and the Streamline track, that there are noticeable differences in the emphasis. I think the delivery is more believable, or at least it has more emotion in it in the Japanese track, 
and in the streamlined track, even the lines have been changed so much at times that it seems that the relationship between characters has changed to a point where you can take a different reading from their relationships. Most notably, perhaps, the colonel and the scientist. Yeah, that's an extremely good call, yeah. which which you brought out. The colonel and the scientist line delivery when they are first discussing about Tetsuo. Because, for example, I paid most attention to the discussion that they have in the elevator when there is this quite ridiculous situation where scientist and colonel are talking and the colonel says a a lot of uh, kind of weird lines like I guess it's valid in this scientist's situation but he says that scientists are a bunch of romantics and that probably couldn't be further from the truth in most cases but since we are in the field of films they are sometimes typecasted like this, then he also says that a scientist wouldn't understand. Which is kind of interesting because a scientist's whole role is kind of to understand. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know if this is this is making... I just... I don't know what the whole idea was here, but of course there is this military guy and there's this scientist guy and they have the rivalry, I get it. But I kind of think that time and time again it's sad to see that a scientist is seen as the guy who just does his science and that that science walks over his feelings towards humanity and it's more important than keeping people alive and uh, being humane the mad scientist trope which which has been plaguing the movies ever since the goddamn frankenstein yeah i have a little bit of problem with that but uh, the point was here that the the lines are quite different in this scene in Japanese and uh, 1988 dub. Yeah, uh, on that note, since we are talking about mad scientists, I myself paid... I, I went through and watch, watched the film on on all the audio tracks. I, I watched it with the Japanese original track and then with the two American releases. And something that really kind of a, I played, the, or something that popped out to my eye, since we are now talking about the mad scientist aspect, is, like I said, the first discussion which they have, which the general and the scientist are having in this film, when they are first time talking about that show. And in that particular scene, the lines have been changed in such of a way that the power structure between the two characters changes. And in the Streamline's original American dub, the mad scientist guy is even more mad scientist guy. Because in, in, in both dubs, the colonel makes the notion that Tetsuo and the power Tetsuo is having and all these psychic powers may be too much for them to handle. And he is shown to have a bit of hesitance on whatever or not should they actually be tempering with these psychic powers or not. In Pioneer's version, the, the new dub version. The general, right after he has raised the question that are they messing with something that they really can't handle, he comes to a point that they still, despite the dangers, they have no other choice but to try to harness the psychic power, the power of God, like like he calls it. So that they have to do it even though he himself would rather not touch the whole subject because the psychics are so uh, unpredictable. 
but in Streamline's original US version, it's the scientist who pulls full mad at this point and and makes the notion to the general that they have gone too far and they simply can't turn back now. Kind of a making the situation where the scientist is telling the general watch what and almost giving him the order. Mm. We can't turn back now. So we are going to push forward with the mad sciences. Mm. And boy, god damn it, is that kind of funny on top of some of the really awful line delivery that is prominent in the Streamlines version. Not to mention the fact that Streamline also makes Tetsuo even more emo than he is in the Pioneer's dub. Okay, good call. I myself indeed haven't yet listened to the 2001 dub, so fortunately we have a guy here who did his homework for this episode. Yeah... You know, after listening to all the three audio tracks, and I know I most likely will be burned on a stake for saying this, but I myself found favoring the Pioneers 2001 American dub. Well, by really shortly listening to the different US versions of the Colonel's voice, well, if I would go on that... Well, even that was criticized that it sucks in the 2001 version. What's up with Canada and what's up with this and that? I think the kernel sounded more believable than the one in the 1988 release where kernel sounds definitely more comedical. It's, well, I guess it's what you're looking for, but in the 1988 version it's like he is this caricaturized version, like doing all this teeth-biting sounds like Ugh! I'm not sure if that's much happening in the 2001 version no it does not it's it's the streamlines <laughs> streamlines Jesus fucking Christ yeah I oh, I had already forgotten the teeth-binding sounds <laughs> Jesus Christ so, so, something that also happens is streamline or that there are some scenes where you can clearly see that the American voice actor is saying something and at the same time you can clearly see that lips are not moving in the film itself. I noticed that too, yeah. I noticed. Yeah. Very prominent, for example, in the scene where Kaori is almost raped and Tetsuo is beating up that member of the clowns. Uh, Hendrik, more technical question for you since you listened both of those dubs. Is there difference in ambient sound quality in these tracks meaning well if the sound quality overall was worse in the earlier dub then that probably means that they do not have the original you know speeches available to them anymore and they just used like the finished track where everything is mixed together and they just put it on the dvd and blu-ray and that's it whereas in the new dub they probably have the original you know audio clips so they can probably provide a better Akira sound in general. Uh, there is. Like, of course, the, the new audio is, is from 2001, so also the recording and audio mixing techniques have come yeah. a long way from the original release of the film. Yeah. But I, I, w- I would say that the new Pioneers version would be, I guess... It would be 5.1 Dolby Digital, and the original Streamlines 
audio as well as the original Japanese audio would be 2.0 stereo. So yeah. in, in, in that regards, yep, the, the audio is notably more better in, in the new Pioneer dub overall. And that may hugely affect why I in the end ended up liking Pioneer's version more than even the original Japanese audio track. It's also often the case that they have only the Dolby Stereo soundtrack that is the original master track and then they just, you know, of course in this case as well they have modified it to be 5.1. I but, yeah. almost, listening in the two American audios and listening the differences between the voice acting and line delivery, I would almost hazard a guess that they went on and re-recorded the audio entirely for the digital remastered version. Mm. Like, they, they, they didn't just enhance the original version of the audio track, but they instead did it completely new. And if, if they did that, you know, I... Well, listening to the audio quality, and the care that, in my opinion, Pioneer has put on the audio track... If this really is is a new audio track that they have recorded completely new from the scratch, I would also have to guess that this hasn't been cheap audio track to produce. Like money, some serious money has been spent on a re-recording process. Of course, at this point when they were doing the read-up, they already knew the what Akira is all about, how much of a hit it has been and how much of a care should be paid to this one if we're going to do it now again. In yeah, in in when Pioneer was remastering the film, Akira no longer was one of the first, if not the first, anime feature film to come to US and have an American theatrical release. But instead of that, now at this point of time in 2001, Akira was Hugely phenomenal and influential cult film that had become kind of an entity of its own and had become film cultural masterpiece that everybody should see at least once in their lifetime. So of course the care and the money you put into this kind of a remastering, it's gonna be higher than what you put into the process when you are just aiming to have a limited theatrical release like it was in 88. So there's an explosion in the shopping center. Uh, there's a pretty goofy terrorist announcement that follows it. There has been a terrorist attack and therefore get in line and show your ideas so you can get out of this maze, whatever it was. It's like it would happen every day in Neo Tokyo. Perhaps it does. Um, in many ways, the film, how... I mean, in the film... There is the notion to be made that violence is kind of a constant in Neo-Tokyo, and many of the characters have become kind of a jaded to this all-around violence around them. If you think back to the first school scene, where Kaneda and his friends are being given a lecture by the principal, and it basically boils down to the gym teacher just beating up Kaneda and his friends, like giving one fist bump to each and every one of them, in that moment, nobody even flinches. Like, it's nothing shocking to the guys. It's something that happens even before that. During the police station bombing, Kaneda 
even barely seems to recognize that bomb has gone off behind him. There is a small shock, like something happened behind him, but he's not very taken back by what has just happened. And from this you can kind of picture together the image that violence has become kind of a constant element in everyday life in Neo-Tokyo. And therefore the, also the shopping mall terrorist strike and the shootout that results from it is kind of a kind of a everyday situation, nothing that special to anyone. Neo Tokyo in itself is kind of a conflict zone. Well, also animated characters can have the luxury of not giving a shit about their surroundings. You just animate it like that. Uh, uh, that it is, but you know, it, it once again, we, we are talking about a film that is groundbreaking on the level of frames, how much has been animated. Hungering once again back to that major budget that this film had. So they most definitely would have had the money to animate everybody to be surprised by explosions happening around them and, and the violence that happens throughout the story. And in that sense, not animating them to be that surprised is an artistic choice from the creator's part. One of the confusing elements of the anime for me is the relationship of Ryu or how it's written in the US, Ryo and his relationship with Kei. Like, how do these people know each other and what is going on here? Yup. Okay, so the same for you. Same for me, because the film never says a goddamn thing about it. Right. I mean, if, if you go by the tones in the line delivery, and I'm, I'm now talking about the 2001 Pioneers American dub, I, I was picking kind of a tones that, well, Canada was suspecting, or that there might be some kind of a, some type of romantic feelings. Between K and Ryu. Yeah. Yeah. But that's never confirmed or brought up in any way. It's just something that I myself read on how the lines were delivered and what kind of a tone of voice was being used. But that's, that's just something that I as well might have misread. Because the film never actually gives you a confirmation on whatever or not, is there anything between the two. Here is a good example of the difference between the audio tracks. When Kay gets into the small lift or is it used for food delivery. Anyway, she gets there and she says like, Ryu Kiyotskete, like, be careful. That happens in two parts in the Japanese version. It's like she does not have enough time to say her line before the door closes. It's like, Ryu! And then the door closes, and then she finishes the line, Kyotskete. Whereas in the streamlined version, there's never a pause in this sentence. It's just, you two be careful, with a lot of like, uh, there is no hesitation in those words. So the it's totally different situation. And this is why voice acting in animated feature films is kind of a bitch. Yep. After which... K is now in the sewers for whatever the fuck reason and for whatever the fuck reason she is being haunted by the police and randomly Canada is there to or Canada is there to help her in a situation where she cannot do any other resolution she is forced to 
Shoot the cop, once again in the Japanese audio track, she's completely terrified about her actions, whereas in the streamlined version, she doesn't sound so shocked about the end result. Anyway, Kaneda and K escape. And that, once again, that, that is, I, I think, a lot of lost material in Streamline's dubbing. Because the moment when Kay has to shoot the guard coming at him is kind of a major thing for Kay as a character. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of these dream sequences. Here's one. It involves, I think it's Tetsuo and some other kid on the playground, reminiscent of Terminator 2 explosion scenes. But here everything just collapses, even the body of Tetsuo collapses. Yeah, it's Tetsuo and Kaneda. Like, it's it's Tetsuo yeah. kind of remembering his childhood with Kaneda growing up. I'm not sure, is it an orphanage or where they are? It's a school, or it looks very much like a school, but then again, at the same time, it's a place where Tetsuo's father apparently dumps him. Which is followed by one of the three supernatural kids, the one in the glass shelter. Her name is Kyoko, and she gives the crucial information that she has seen in a dream or a vision that the city will crumble and all things will go to hell. And the colonel is grilling her for more information. Colonel takes the clue that he has to take action, so he does. More of this tension between the scientist and the colonel. Let's look for the line. The colonel says, my job isn't to believe or disbelieve. It's to act or not to act. The military guy. Well, he acts. There's this uh, famous elevator scene with the scientist and colonel once again some more tension between them as mentioned prior and for whatever reason now they are going to the place where akira is kept under two kelvin and what does the colonel do he just stares at the place where he is and that's it then cut to back to kaneda and k also on this scene i'm not entirely sure Whatever or not, do I hate or love how the scene transitions between the general and the scientist being transcending on the elevator in a skyscraper and then immediately cutting back on general ascending on the elevator to the underground base where they are holding Akira. Since you mentioned the cuts, I think it would be appropriate to talk about the cuts or the scene changes in the original manga. And there are several situations where I am completely and utterly lost in the plot of the manga. There is the page in Akira Volume 1, in the page 298. There are motorcyclists approaching Tetsuo. There's a screen where the motorcyclist is approaching and he says, screaming, now it's your turn! Then there is a close-up of Tetsuo, then there's a close-up of a tire of the motorcycle, and the next screen you get is a shot where you see the motorcyclist flying out of a window, with the window clashing into pieces, the motorcycle also flying in mid-air, and suddenly the guy gets crushed under a truck. There are several situations like this, like where I, where I have no idea what actually happened. 
but it just seems that the guy flies out of the window for some unexplainable reason and gets killed. Well, there is the reference that Tetsuo is there, but you don't see anything. And moreover, if I compare... Uh, well, I'm not so familiar with manga, but if I compare this manga to, like, let's say, Donald Duck, <laughs> when you change from subplot to subplot, you usually have this small notation in the upper left corner of the page where it says, at this time, in this place, with these people, or something like that. Here it never does that, so you have to pay more attention where it changes the whole time and space and place. Uh, that you do. That you do, e- even in the manga version, which I never had that much trouble following. But yeah, that that's something that does happen in, in the manga. I actually had to take a moment here because I'm going on when it comes to manga. I'm hunching back to the Finnish publication. So to me, your volume one where this happens would be, in my books, it's volume two. <laughs> Because of that, you know, we are cutting the source material in in half. And also something that happens in volume 2 is that there is no page numbering. Because, you know, that's one way how like publishing can save in inks, ink expenses. But I did manage to find the page you were talking about. Wow. Uh, yeah, I I can see, see what you're meaning. I mean, there is a small close-up on... On Tetsuo's face, right after the guy says, now it's your turn. Mm-hmm. And right next panel is, is a close-up on Tetsuo's face. And the implication here given is is that Tetsuo uses his psychic powers yeah. to control the dude's bike so that he goes over the railing and crashes underneath the truck. My experience just was that often when there is an action sequence happening and there there is a lot of this you know, lines going throughout the drawing uh, implicating that something very fast-paced is happening in the manga, I often lost the plot because, you know, the camera changes the side from this side to that side and uh, sometimes you can't figure out who is doing what and who is winning, who is losing. That's just my experience. And then I wondered, like, how the hell can you make an animated film out of this and figure out what the fuck is going on here? But... The obvious answer is that the same guy has made this film. Uh, that that most definitely is something that happens. To, to give okay. you kind of kind of a next example of this would be, and once again, thanks to like publishing, I have no fucking idea what is the actual page number, but you know, from the now is your turn page one, two, three, four, five, six page onwards, there the, we arrive to a scene where. The government officials are interrogating the barkeep. And at the lower end of the page, there are three panels. First one, which shows that the government goon is lighting something on fire. Then there is an extreme close-up on the barkeep's face as he yells hi. And then a wider panel showing barkeep reaching out to the burning object, which the government goon is throwing on the floor. Okay. And... And the barkeep is asking, what are you doing? Uh, for example, w- once again, you are never actually visually shown what the hell is the object that the government goon is actually burning on that moment. It- it's something that you can understand if you read carefully through the dialogue. It's given out in one of the lines. 
it apparently is the permit papers for the bar. But once again, you know, the visuals kind of direct your attention to an entirely different situation on that moment. Yeah, a lot of situations like that that make you question. You have to question if Katsuhiro Otomo does know the conventional ways of doing cinematography because sometimes I'm so lost I'm I'm not so sure that he's extremely familiar with the cinematic language which you also need in your your manga I would say that he is like like to me this is not a fault or or something that results from not understanding the media you are working with because the information kinda is still or Otomo in every case, Otomo at least tries to give you the information which you need to follow up or to follow what is happening. But what happens in the manga is is the same goddamn thing that happens in the anime, which is that the story, even in 2000 page fucking manga, it gets so goddamn dense that Otomo seems to be kind of a struggling to tell the entire story and all that is happening even in those 2000 pages. Which results in images and panels where, for example, you have to take the image and the dialogue both together and separately at the same time because the image shows you one thing and the dialogue tells you the next thing. And, and like in the parkip scene, a dialogue in one image tells you information that you need to understand what happens two or three panels onwards in the manga. So you kind of, you have to be aware of what exactly it is that you are looking at and what is exactly what you are reading at any given moment when reading Akira. Yep. And I kind of loved it when when reading Akira. I got the feeling that there is constantly something happening and information is constantly being given to you as it is. But of course, the downside of that is that it is a hard thing to follow and it is kind of a... It's a hard read in a sense that you can't, re- for example, read the entire manga on one go. Akira is is so kind of a big entity, even as a manga, that you can you can kind of read one volume and then you have to take a breather and have to take a break and you know do something else and maybe you know take a day or two off and then read the next volume because you'll be exhausted after that first volume. You are, you have just gone through. Yeah, I have to say it was a little bit exhausting reading the first four volumes in what, I don't know, four or five hours with like some breaks in between. But yeah, that's what you do in this podcast with this scheduling. Your scheduling, may I point out. <laughs> but, but, but you know, when, when you take that kind of a manga, the manga you can't even yourself read through in one go. Because it's so goddamn condensed and so tightly packed and there is so much goddamn information. And then you try to squeeze it into a two-hour-long anime. Yeah. Like, like the madness kind of starts to peak out here. And then to a two-hour-long podcast, which is going on three hours. <laughs> yep. <bet. laughs> At this point, yeah, we, are, we have bypassed it already the two-hour mark by a mile. So after Canada has been locked up... By Kay's friend Ryu, or Rua, or Roy. <laughs> uh, he then immediately escapes and eavesdrops them on a conversation, which almost gets him killed, but then not. They decide it's better to keep him alive. And then Ryu 
meets the politician. First time introduced to this extremely central character in the manga. Yup, the other half of the entire political struggle that is going on between the politicians and the army behind the scenes of Akira. Yeah. Yeah. And is it even explained how Ryu or Roy is betraying him? I do not know, but then he just shoots Ryu. And that's it. Also, when it comes to this... Well, this is really interesting. At the same time they meet, we see Lady Miyako being part of this gang who believes that Akira is the their their god. Whereas in the manga, she is exactly the opposite. There is the Akira gang who texts him as the god. And then there is the Lady Miyako who provides shelter for everybody who do not believe in this god. But here she is, like, preying on Akira. That's a one change in the story that I never was completely sure why they did it. Like, I, I guess it would be to have her in the story, even though you don't have the time anymore to actually do do the original storyline with her. So you have to change kind of a, her stance on the whole matter and what type of a character she is. Yeah, yeah, they just dumped her in somehow. Well, then there's the panel with the government, the discussion, the representatives don't believe Akira exists. They take out the control of the colonel, and the colonel walks out of the meeting. The whole Akira doesn't exist situation, in my opinion, especially in the anime, is, is kind of a... Kind of a baffling scene that, well, it's only been 30 years since the the first Akira explosion, which destroyed the whole goddamn Tokyo. And they were able to goddamn rebuild the Tokyo in 30 years once again. Yep, but, but in that sense, you know, it it is kind of a surprising that the government at this point is, is going on the notion that Akira does not in fact exist. Yeah, and if it doesn't exist, then who is responsible for the explosion? Precisely. Which, looking how old all the politicians in this scene are, they all have been alive when Tokyo originally was destroyed. So they, they themselves have lived through the event and do know that Tokyo most definitely was destroyed and it's not just fake news. Produced by the general, so how did he, well, like how how the fuck are they now questioning the existence of Akira at this point? Yeah, good question. Well, he walks out, and in effect, he is starting to build up his coup d'état. Next scene is where Canada's capsules group enters the hospital premises, disguised, and that's why he's being held in this hospital, where he starts to get these very painful visions. Of an extremely supersized teddy bear. The infamous spermous wedding teddy bear scene. Uh, I didn't think it like that. <laughs> well, uh, God, God damn it, you know, when you just look at it, when you just look at, look what happens in the goddamn screen and all this mysterious white liquid which, okay, Tetsuo does state is milk. Which, is coming, which is coming from the car. Which is coming from the car, but, but the ter- giant teddy bear also is sweating the stuff. Like, it's pouring out of every orifice of, of the teddy bear, and also the giant yeah. rabbit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and goddamn, you know, I'm, I'm still, 
I'm still on the defense side on whatever or not. What is the so-called milk in in this scene? I I can already say that this is most likely my favorite scene in the film. It is really creepy. It is really scary. It just comes out of nowhere. There's a lot of creativity involved. Not just the milk and the teddy bear. The creepy ass music in the background and um, the Duplo or Lego walls that break. I think it's beautiful. It is the biggest facial I've ever seen in a film, and I've seen a lot of. <laughs> but yeah, you know, to, to, to be serious once again, I can ex- clearly see why this scene is so influential because the animation and the imagination going on throughout the scene. Technically, it's very well done scene, animation-wise, and there is general imagination going on. Actually, that is, in my opinion, it's a level of imagination that part of the second half of the film kind of loses. It picks it up at the very end of the proceedings, but during the part when Tetsuo is is walking on the streets of Tokyo heading towards the Olympic Station, I almost feel that the imagination takes a backseat on that moment. It, it takes a step backward. Could be, could be. I found it peculiar why why the test subjects are doing this to Tetsuo. I mean, in the manga, uh, it could be there, but I don't remember. But here, it seems that they are just doing it out of spite. There's no particular point to it. Or are they testing him? I read it like they are trying to scare Tetsuo off. To force him kind of leave the premises of the military complex. Well, he definitely does. In an extremely violent way. Yeah, they kind of get their wish, even though not in the way how they would have hoped. And there is this whole scene where the capsules are fighting the flying apparatuses of the military or the police in the sewers. Which is really rememberable. Lots of magical shit happens and uh, Kaneda, is it Kaneda who is hanging from the waterfall and then manages to... No, that's on the manga. He, he There he jumps on the vehicle, does some wicked movements and manages to lose its balance and, and get rid of the opponent. Well, he does pull off the stunt in a way also in the anime. Mm, yeah, there's nice explosions. They get rid of the guy and they gain control of one of these apparatuses. And meanwhile, Tetsuo is breaking havoc in this hospital. Once again, they try the teddy bear trick and Tetsuo says that's enough. And once again, he gets rid of the facade and sees the three experimented guys who apparently are not as strong as Tetsuo. We gather now. Tetsuo breaks the glass ceiling that is holding uh, Kyoko. The colonel and Kaneda try to persuade him from doing these destructive actions, but he's not listening to anyone. He disappears from the scene and then somehow colonel is super surprised that, oh, he has left the perimeters. What a surprise. And the chaos gets into full swing. This is also a moment where I kind of felt that the motivations of the characters went kind of backwards when compared to their actions. Because the main notion of the three psychic kids and their antics was to make sure that Tetsuo does not go after and find Akira. Because Akira should not be awakened. And at the same time, 
the three psychics are kind of the sole reason why Tetsuo even learns the existence of Akira or, or his location, because up until this point, Akira has just been a name in Tetsuo's head, without anything to tie it into. It's just something that Tetsuo has in his head, and he does not know what it actually is. What is Akira? It is at this point when he meets the psychics, when he finally learns what Akira is, and on top of that learns where Akira is. So it's kind of, if you wanted to keep Tetsuo out of, you know, going look after Akira, uh, then why the hell did you have all these antics? Why did you go after Tetsuo the way you did? And why the fuck did you tell Tetsuo where Akira is? Well, because he can read minds. Well, yeah, but I would almost hazard a guess that he's not the only psychic in play who has the mind reading abilities. Which begs the question, why are these all these three psychics plus Tetsuo in the same room? Why are they not keeping a distance or something like that? That also. Also, uh, I wonder why Tetsuo is so obsessed about Akira and why these three psychics are so obsessed about Akira if they already know that Akira doesn't live anymore. So what's the big deal and why is Akira controlling apparently Tetsuo's head occasionally? That is a good question. It's on the same line as also the notion that if Akira would awaken, it would make the psychic kids more powerful, as it's made in the anime. And this is kind of the reason I gathered why, why the three kids don't want Akira to be awakened. But that also begs the question, if awakened Akira would make you stronger, then why the hell do you not want Akira to be awakened? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of like, I'm giving you all this power... And you go like, oh no, please God, no, help me, I don't want more power. And never never mind the ending where actually it's kind of established that Akira is responsible for the huge ball of light that sucks everything under it. But we'll get to that. Right now, we're concerned about the scene where the colonel is exempt from his duties, but he disagrees very much with that sentiment and kills one of the government officials. And we have some shitty English dubbing from 1988 in this scene, without emotion. And Colonel has started officially his coup d'etat. Which brings us to the bar scene. Why is Tetsuo exactly looking for pills in the bar? The... and once again, this is something where the manga comes to play. The barkeep also is in drug selling business. Oh, good to know, good to know. Uh, Yup. And the pills themselves, the pills that the military control, which are a huge thing to these psychics since, since the pills help to keep the pain away which the psychics feel. Like Tetsuo feels constantly in this film, the killing headaches that he has. And the military has pills that help to this one. And apparently the Military pills are some type of super drug. It, it's a drug that is ten times stronger than the average stuff. And since Tetsuo has escaped, well, and he somehow understands that what he needs is a narcotic substance to help with his headaches, he goes to the first drug dealer he knows in order to kind of get his hands into his stash hoping that if he pops like 10 times the pills, the combined effect would help his headaches. Yeah, 
Once again, the best course of action is just to play the badass when you are extremely new to these psychic and uh, super strength abilities. Play the tough guy, take the medicine, go on about your day, don't worry about the future, you'll be fine. And then in just a matter of hours he'll be in a shit ton of trouble and always refusing the help of the colonel. Not only that, he just keeps on killing people everywhere he goes. He, yeah, Tetsuo constantly actually refuses everyone who offers him any kind of help. Right. That, that's his go-to reaction when, whenever he's been offered help after his psychic powers first awaken in the film. And you can kind of see it, seeing how Tetsuo has an enormous inferiority complex, being the one who has previously been constantly been helped by Kaneda. But still, seeing how far the things process, it's kind of a saying that Tetsuo is overdoing it. Yep, which is followed by Kaneda and Kay discussing in the jail cell, which it's more of actually Kyoko and Kaneda discussing in the jail cell, because Kay is now controlled by Kyoko, the psychic kid in the capsule. Something about Tetsu and Akira getting concentrated amount of ancient energy, blah blah blah. Then the jail door opens by itself. Well, it's opened by Kyoko. The, it was Amoeba's all along explanation <laughs> to what the fuck is going on here. Which I thought was the weakest link in the film. Even when listening to the Japanese version, I thought it was pretty amoebic. It, it was. Uh, this is this is most definitely this is one of the most weakest links in the film. The extremely ham-fisted and stupid explanation onto the question that nobody has asked: uh, Wh- where the psychic powers come from. Yeah, and there there is also this weird notion which I'm certain I'm misreading and is result of the line delivery and me misinterpreting what is being said. I'm, I'm most certain that this is the case, but I got the implication that Kay is making the statement that human knowledge, including the knowledge on, or, you know, the capability to build gigantic structures like airplanes, skyscrapers, moon shuttles, everything, this is something that is being passed on genetically from the days when humankind was primates. Oh. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you can give me all this psychic craziness, this, this, this sci-fi supernatural stuff, but maybe it's better not to explain any of it, because you can't do it anyway. Especially this way. Yeah. I, this, is, this is the one point where I would have just hoped that, that the film just would not have tried to explain what the fuck is going on. I, I was completely, you know, happy with... With the notion that there's just for some odd reason there are psychics who are super powerful and the army is controlling them. But, yeah. Uh, then who is actually this dude that uh, Kaneda meets on the street when Kaneda and Kay are running away and then he's like, Hey, I'm here. And then they talk by the river before the vision of Kyoko. Well, they talk, they discuss Tetsuo by the river. Kaneda destroys his bike for whatever reason, so that Tetsuo can't get it or something. Even though his bike is still somewhere else. So I don't understand. And then Kei teleports away with Takashi 
and uh, Kyoko makes the notion that the power of Akira is in everyone. The deep stuff that you get in this film. Meaning that everybody has this kind of a power, but in different concentrations. Something like that. Something like that, because, because that that's the notion that's being made. Everybody has psychic powers, but they just can't into psychics. For some goddamn reason. I guess it's chosen by Amoebas, who gets to be the cool-ass psychic who can fly, or mm. something like that, but yeah. Hmm, cool. Super Amoebas. And uh, Roy has sold out the fat government guy, or that's how it's established in the plot, when Roy and the government guy meet inside his the government guy's office. That's the line in the Japanese version. That uh, Roy has sold him out, but n- no reason given as far as I know. And then he's shot. And no confirmation on whether or not he uh, even sold the government guy out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, the government guy eats a few hundred medicines and dies instantly. And I believe Roy then gets shot with bullets soon after. It is, yeah, this, this is once again one of those scenes that are a bit baffling. A bit hard to see what what the hell everybody is thinking at this moment. I read it as such that the government guy is having a heart attack. From the stress when he realizes that all his machinations are going to shit, and the general mm. is has taken over their army and is using army to coming after the government, which apparently is corrupt. And, yeah. and the stress is too much, and it's taking, you know, too much for his heart. But then again, at the same time, you know, if you are having a heart attack, then why the hell wait until you have left your mansion and are wandering on the streets of Tokyo where there is constant fighting going on, and then eat 200 medicine at once? Mm-hmm. Well, if we go back to the source code, we have in manga uh, this page 114 in, is it which edition? There is the line where one of the soldiers says, his name is Nezu. He says, Nezu, he's the leader of the Kamen opposition party. He's on the list. Shoot him. He's got a religious cult behind him. He's trying to take over the government. So this is extremely needed background information to actually even explain why the hell we have Nezu in the film, because he doesn't have, like, this kind of a esta- established plot to him. He's, he's just the government guy, and we don't know anything nefarious about him, do we? We don't know exactly the much that he is in coalition with Ryu. Yeah, that's all. Like, he, he's feeding Ryu information, and Ryu is trying to get the kids out of the military facility, but that's that's the most you get. Yeah. He there there is also well you get get the you understand that for some reason Nezu is is against the general and he is having machinations with the political side of the argument to kind of undermine the general and take away his power. Which you can read the way how Nezu smiles in the scene when when they are having the big meeting between the general and, and the politicians early on in the film. Hmm, yeah. But but that's that's literally all you get here. 
Like that that's all explanation you get. You you uh, don't get the you know the plot point where Nesu is with the cult and dealing with them and you don't really get even the notion of Nesu trying to over kind of a harness seize the power and take over the entire control from the general. Yeah, and then the newscast guy supposedly bites the bullet, probably gets destroyed by the army, kind of illegally obviously. After which we already see that Kaneda is now, now has taken back control of his own bike, goes off to hunt for Tetsuo. And now that we are on the second half of the film, uh, this is the point where I feel that the film kind of has a constructional problem. In a way how it handles its exposition and how it handles the action throughout the story because the first hour of the movie is extremely condensed storytelling wise. You are being given information in so much and there is so much being left out in the matter that the storyline is kind of a pastor to, to follow on the first half of the film. And then on the second half you kind of mostly just get fight scenes. And explosions, yeah. And e- yeah, and explosions. Tetsuo goes against the army, and then it's Tetsuo versus K, and then it's Tetsuo versus Kaneda, and on that line. And I understand why this has happened, because, you know, of course you have to have all the, or at least most of the story stuff before you get into your big action set pieces, which you are supposed to reserve for the ending of the film, so that the, you, can, you can end your film with a bang. I get that. But there, there is the fact that exposition being given to you and the action given to you are not, in my opinion, at all in balance between the two halves of the film. I noticed the same thing. I was just waiting for the explosion of information to end and then just waiting for the, you know, the action to take stronghold in the end so I can kind of relax and kind of, you know, see what's the main point of this film, what, what am I following, and you know, to get the kind of this simplified setting, what you're looking for with your film, and where it's going to end up. So, in the second half, I definitely got more space to breathe, and I started to, you know, get the idea of where, where this is going, what is happening. But the first half, yeah, gotta pay attention. And it may have made the overall experience more easy, to sit through had the exposition been handed out a bit more spacingly throughout the movie. If you would have had more space to breathe even also on the first half, so you don't have to wait a goddamn hour into the movie before, you know, you can sit back a little bit. You could have done that because the second half is not so much plot-driven anymore. It's about the fighting, yep. Yeah. And then, once again, it gets extremely confusing on the last, like, 20-15 minutes of the film, which is balls-to-the-walls craziness. It does. Um, We see, indeed, uh, aforementioned Lady Miyako. She has apparently lost her mind in this film and is rooting for Lord Akira and falls to her death soon after, when the bridge is being blown into pieces. And since I have been... You know, praising the pioneer dub throughout this episode, I, in honesty's sake, I have to make the notion that in Pioneer's version of the dub, at this point when Lady Kyoko 
slides down the destroyed bridge to her death. She sounds precisely like Carrie doing an imitation of an old lady. <laughs> Maybe I should be doing that more often. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you, I, I, w- I would say you, you have a possible career in voice acting. <laughs> I have thought about it. <laughs> if, if even as a joke, that would pay me money. But Tetsu arrives to the government facility holding Akira. And scientists notice as Tetsu's wave is getting stronger. Uh, and soon at this moment, the colonel notices that scientist is mostly concerned about that and... Starts the huge raging. I don't know why, but anyway it does. Well, he gets the idea that scientist is not interested in stopping Tetsuo. Once again, Kei, controlled by Kyoko, tries to persuade Tetsuo to leave the premises. He doesn't, obviously, because he is not taking note of anyone in this film. And Tetsuo finds Akira. It's just the preserved samples of Akira, who has been dead for a long time. However, not... As dead as you would believe, as we will see in the end, as we will we will talk about it in the, in a second. Then Kaneda and Tetsuo badly doubt somehow Kaneda is perfectly able to, you know, stay alive during this whole thing. When in the meanwhile, Tetsuo is destroying a spaceship, Sol 740, in space. And, and yeah, that fucking scene... <laughs> Like, the solar satellite, using space-orbited major satellite, huge-ass laser cannon weapon on Tetsuo, and resulting only in Tetsuo losing his arm. Like, <laughs> it, it, it was stretching all the possibilities and dumb fuckness even in manga, even in the original body of work, but at least in there. The laser blast had collateral damage. And it destroyed the environment to a point. And in there, even it did not go into the absolute absurdness, which is Tetsuo flying into the outer fucking space, breathing in vacuum and destroying the orbital satellite laser weapon. Yeah, which begs the question, are we going to say this is okay because it's an anime? Or should we treat it as more of a like a live action? Or it's simply because it's a fantasy, we should just allow everything to happen? Because at this point, everything that can be happening has indeed happened. So, you know, why not take a little trip, side trip to space? What's the big deal, Henrik, after all? It's, it's a fantastic scene, I'm not denying that. But it's also dumb as hell, to put it lightly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it yeah, it kind of uh, changes the rules of the checkerboard. Yeah, basically, Tetsuo can go anywhere at any point at any time. Doesn't have to be in Neo Tokyo. It doesn't even have to be on planet Earth. Yeah. Be- because if if not something, amoebas most definitely are cosmic entities. Yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, anyway, Tetsuo destroys Sol with huge success. Tetsuo creates an artificial hand. Out of the debris in the debris sites, scientist gets busted by the colonel for being the evil scientist who cares more about the experiments than human survival. And Kaori helps Tetsuo to sit down because somehow Tetsuo is so exhausted after the huge battles with Canada and spaceships, so gotta take a little break. 
Also, magically, the bottles that hold the samples of Akira are perfectly untouched after the huge battle and fighting when they actually are flown into different directions by several explosions and in the end they are unharmed. Anyway, now Tetsuo is sitting in an unstable condition and he begins to grow out of control, literally. So the machine or the debris arm that he had created is now the, the well, the body part that is growing and uh, forcing him to sit in this chair and he can no longer control himself. He's still able to get some solid hits at Colonel, but after that he is just consuming everybody and everything. The Colonel is almost consumed by him, and then his girlfriend is crushed to death and what have you. Whereas Kaneda not. For some odd reason, which is never explained. Yeah. I, 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 I guess Kaneda has drink more milk and therefore has more calcium so his bones can take more damage than calories. Okay, so after all it's a it's just a big advertisement for the milk industry, right? Yep, it all all comes back to that goddamn milk. Oh, good spotting. And uh, Akira's sample classes finally break. And Akira now appears as an ever-consuming, ever-expanding ball of light that consumes everything. After which we get to flashbacks to Tetsuo's past and we see how badly poor Tetsuo has been taken care of and Kaneda kind of seems to agree. But then he flies into I don't know what and he's fine. The more flashbacks and stuff about Akira, actually, where he breaks the television into pieces. Eh, well, the light consumes the whole city. Hey, you know, it's the like the cosmic rebirth or some shit. Scientist gets crushed to death, most probably. And then Canada catches a light between his hands. So is it now the huge ball of light that is in his hand suddenly? I have no idea. I, I, I guess that's Tetsuo, in a sense. Except it's not, because Tetsuo is also the moon child. Oh, is he? Okay. And But Akira is responsible for this light. So Akira is the light, and Tetsuo is Tetsuo that is just ever-expanding into this muscle shit, and is taken over by the light of Akira, and then Akira, Tetsuo, Kyoko, and the other bunch of freaks join forces in this light. And Which they precisely did not want to do, because the light is result of Akira Awakening and they did not want Akira Awakened because Akira Awakening would make them all strong. Right, so yep. that, that, that's asking for Akira Part 2, clearly. Evil is still out there. <laughs> <laughs> but the end lines are suggesting a hell of a lot of different things. There's the line, Tetsuo, thank you, is it by Kaneda? And then another line, Tetsuo's gone, the others do, and Akira. What happened to Tetsuo? Is he dead? I don't know, uh, replies Kaneda. He doesn't know. Tetsuo is something. And what happened to Tetsuo? Is he dead? I'm not so sure, but he's probably... Dot dot dot. Then the big light comes from the sky. Many different lights come from the sky. Yeah, the sunlight breaks through the cloud. Right. The colonel is pissed off, as usual, and... Then there's this weird line, but someday we'll also be able to... Dot, dot, dot. You see, it's already begun. What has? They motorcycle their asses back to the destroyed Neo City, and they say, let's see who it is, the Kaneda, I guess. Oh, it's Akira, I think. Well, it's one of the kids. But someday we'll also be able to. You see, it's already begun. 
<sighs> what the hell? I took that as a notion that they are basically all still alive and they are going through some kind of a transformation. But they'll be also able to... what? To die? To take another form like Tetsuo? Possibly to take another form of like Tetsuo, because the very last image of the film is the giant ball of light that states that he is Tetsuo. Meaning mm. that Tetsuo, in a sense, have kind of a transcended the human form of existence, and he has become a new kind of entity that still, in a way, kind of is alive. In that René Descartes way, I think, therefore, I am. And Tetsuo is shown to be thinking, so Tetsuo, it exists. And the before this, there was somewhere along the final scenes with the scientist guy. The scientist guy makes the notion that what is happening could be a birth of a universe. Yeah, this really confused me. This might be just the reason why you would not, and we do not, use Wikipedia as a source for this podcast. Absolutely not. Uh, the final conclusion of this plot in Wikipedia says... Quote, finally in control of his powers, Tetsuo triggers a big bang to create a parallel universe as God. Who is is making the notion that it's Tetsuo, first of all? I think it's Akira, who is the ball of light. Yeah. Where do you pull the parallel universe bullshit and God? I don't know. Wikipedia is a fickle beast. You know, I mean, there is a reason why in Finland, in academic circles, you are not allowed to use Wikipedia articles as a source. Yeah. And this is one of the goddamn reasons precisely why. Most likely, yeah. Because looking at this film, well, me and you, I, I cannot pull any parallel universe or god shit or Big Bang theory or the Tetsuo triggers it from this end. No. I'm, my, my reading was that the kids and Tetsuo fuse with Akira. Akira becomes a ball of light that swallows them all. But it, yeah. it's not its not a bad act like it was when the flesh mountain Tetsuo swallowed people and it just ended up harming and killing the people. In Akira's case, that act of swallowing them is, is a transcending moment. Like, Akira takes them with him to become something more than human. Basically becoming this, as Tetsuo is being so, shown, gigantic balls of light which still have a consciousness. So they become some kind of a higher beings in somewhere. Yeah, and in the last frames of the film you do see this possibly an explosion, most likely an explosion that condenses and then explodes, which kind of suggests the creation of a universe. And the last line is actually, I am Tetsuo. And roll credits. Yeah. <sighs> so, so... But, but it's still not, it's not a birth of the universe. No. In, in the sense that, that the universe would start anew, because Kaneda and the Neo-Tokyo still very much exist. Well, but it's so, a parallel, parallel universe. It, it could be, but it's never explained. Yeah, to me, to me it was that all the psychic kids kind of became this over-encompassing kind of a god-like beings in the end, where they exist in some metaphysical dimension which 
is not the planet Earth in any sense. Like, they, they became something so much greater than human that they kind of became existences on their own right. Kind of like the goddamn Moonchild in the Space Odyssey 2001. Yeah, yeah, I can buy that. Well, the credits roll, ladies and gentlemen. And something about the sound landscape here. You can hear a lot of very retro sound effects, all the way dating back to the early 50s. Now you can find, uh, I think it's exactly the same effect that you have in the film Goldfinger, for example. In Bond's car you have this tire breaker invention that breaks the other girl's car. And you have this pinching sound that you have somewhere in this film. You also have the computer sounds that you hear in Alien from 1979. It's like the ship's mother making sounds with the computer. You remember this click-clack, click-clack, chick-chick-chick-chick sounds that are very prominent, especially in the beginning of the film before the cryo thing is open and the system is starting up. You have that, then you have kind of early westerners, etc. sounds. This screaming bullet sound, like indicating that the bullet is most likely hitting a wall, like uh, bouncing from different objects to another. And you have this ah! sound coming from the bullet, which confused me as a kid actually, because it sounds very much like somebody screaming. And you have it in like 150 billion films from the early era. That's it. Also when it comes to the sound landscape music, it's very memorable here. I would describe it as psychedelic, original and haunting and actually African. You have this <laughs> drumming beat that you could find in a lot of African music, I would say. And these repeating haunting voices. Dun, 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 and Canada, the duo. Yeah, and the card chord that plays out, which sounds like, kind of like they are saying duh in the key elements of the film. <laughs> yeah, not, not like a Teenage slasher, comedy, musical, horror, or whatever. And then again, you know, interesting kind of a notion to make, seeing how... I'm not sure, but I would almost make the case that this movie very much was meant for the teenagers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just to make the point that this soundtrack is not something that you would probably pop out every day, not for me anyways, but it fits the mood and the atmosphere of the film. So as it's not like a, some kind of a modern pop music that you listen at nauseum as a teenager, mind you. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, I could see myself copying this one. Could be. Again, you know, <laughs> you know that, that, that could just also very well just be me being weird. Yeah, it's the, not, not the kind of film that you would pop on in your regular party at Rovaniemi. Well, this, this is the kind of film which end sequences I would use as a jerk-off material. Which, which, now, now that the joke has been passed out, is actually quite, quite a horrible sentiment to be made. I just don't know what to add here. Oh my fucking god, I think, you know, th- my place in hell is certain, you know. Since, you know, one reading that you can take of those final moments and the film in general is the huge amount of post-World War II anxieties that Japan had to go through since the world ended up like it did for Japan. I mean, not, yeah. not to, yeah, not to say that there is any obvious symbolism in, in Akira, but it is a movie where Tokyo is destroyed twice by huge-ass explosion, and at the very end of the film, Tetsuo 
practically is a teenager whose body is convulsing under horrible deformities. Yeah, this explosion theme certainly not something that you would expect from something like the most loved anime of all time. I don't know. Then again, you know, there were both Hiroshima and Nagasaki anxieties, the traumas that were suffered in those bombings, are something that anime has touched upon countless of times. Also yeah. during this golden age of anime, and it is a running theme in many of the well-loved and well-recorded anime masterpieces. Okay, perhaps like alleviating the pain from those from those times. Uh, that and also trying to have, I would say, a societal discussion with the mm. youth of Japan. Because something that you kind of have to remember when, when watching films like Akira is the fact that during the time when Akira was kind of a getting its birth, Japan itself was going through quite a violent societal disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, before I forget that, there is definitely something that we could touch upon. That that this film is kind of bringing out the notion that there is something problematic with the current times of Japan. Like that Japan has, or Tokyo has, transformed into this more liberal environment that is something that should be dealt with. That something that should cease to exist and build a new society. In, yeah, exactly my reading of the proceedings, but a very good point, I must confess, because following the Second World War and the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a generation that was left, like mentioned, extremely traumatized by what they had just gone through. And this generation eventually became fathers and mothers of a younger generation of Japanese youth. And seeing where they themselves had come from, the traumatic loss of life and the destruction of, well, basically Japan itself, you know, bringing it down to rubble and having to build it up again from scratch, led into a situation where the now adult and and working as parents generation wanted to kind of shield their kids from the horrible existence that they themselves had gone through. This was also paired by the economic boom of the 80s, in which Japan had a huge streams of money coming into it, and it, it, it was kind of an economical highlight, which Japan was going through during the 80s, and that is something that also helped a lot of these anime companies to get their projects running at that time. But it also gave the parents money to kind of give to their kids all those things that were denied from them themselves when they were going through the post-bombing era of Japan's history. And that led into a quite significant cultural divide between the two generations. Because you, you had the youth generation, which had over excess of resources and luxuries. Because the now in booming economic parents, of course, wanted to, you know, kind of spoil their children, drown them in Coca-Cola and give them all these luxuries and possibilities that they themselves had been denied. And mm-hmm. the kids took all this in, and because of this, they kind of lost their connection to their parents. 
Since the parents at the same time when they were drowning their kids into Coca-Cola were also wanted their children to kind of understand where they themselves were coming from and demanded kind of a, this kind of obedience and, and respect to what they themselves had gone through, which was of course something that the kids themselves did not have a personal touching point because yeah. they were living in the time of excess and this led into a violent youth rebellion in Japan, which peaked in 1984, when the crime statistics, and especially juvenile crime, had its high point in Japan. And this also had a lot of uh, violent youth crime in it. And this cultural divide, this youth revolt, is, is something that has been touched upon in many well-respected anime, this generation of youth is, is something that is being tried to have a discussion with through many pieces of well-noted animes. There, there is the cute tripping of Grave of the Fireflies, or the more harsh and even intimidating dialogue that is seen in the 1999 novel Battle Royale in which the backstory is that the violent youth have gotten so violent that their own parents have become afraid of them. And in that fear and desperation, the parents themselves support passing through the Battle Royale Act. And I, I would say that that's something that you can also see, and that need for dialogue is something that you can see also in Akira, where this society has become so dysfunctional that it no longer can behave in any rational way. Akira's word is a word where where the teenagers run violent biker gangs and where the military power is is kind of the go-to response to the societal upheavals. And it's a word where violence is the go-to response and you really can't see a moment of tenderness and caring amidst the characters. Like, if, if you wanna really stretch it out, and I, I mean extremely stretch it out, you could say that there, there might be something between Kei and Kaneda and Kauri and Tetsuo. But that's me taking the implications to their limit here in the film. But there, there is definitely that sex or indecency and decency aspect to it. One of the most memorable moments is when Roy or Ryu and was it Nezu, the government guy, are meeting for the first time and in the background you see on the bench and this couple where this young guy is putting his hand under the shirt of this young girl and all all of these kind of uh, dropped implications kind of give you the idea that the place is that this is, Neo Tokyo is an indecent place to live that definitely does not have any more the same moral codes structuring that Japan used to have just like a few years prior. And there's a huge generational divide going on. Indeed, I could kind of throw the parallels to Poland where I have lived. Because it's funny because in 98, famously, the communism officially ended in that country. So you have the parents of the current generation, the parents that have gone through the communism era, that are coming from an extremely different world to the economically booming 
almost a powerhouse Poland when looking at the GDP growth year by year. And the kids of them that are living in that age, this uh, capitalist society, in which everything starts to be available for them. Yeah, and on top of that, like, I, I'm not saying that every single fucking film needs to have a love plot in it. Most definitely not. But in Akira's case, I, I would say that acts of love itself are so goddamn absent that Akira makes the case that in Neo Tokyo there no longer is those tender feelings. Like, there are more primal feelings, like like aggression, violence, and lust. Yeah, there's lust, there's kissing, Yeah, but, but there's no, no like, tender passion. No, nobody's holding hands in Akira. Mm. And that, that could be something what Otomo would be trying to say to the youth of Japan, that that they, their way, this extremely violent and aggressive cultural gap between the two generations, if being followed to the end, might lead into a society where everyone is alone and no one gets to have that tenderness anymore. It's more, even more prominent in the, in the manga, where it is implied that Kaneda may have actually seen a child. He may have gotten a woman pregnant. And Kaneda is completely uncaring hearing about this situation. It's, it's not said outright loud who is the father, but there, there is this nurse character in Kaneda's school who mentions specifically to Kaneda that she is pregnant. Mm. And Kaneda is just brushing it off like, cool, can I come to look when you're giving birth? And cares oh, yeah. at none at all about the situation itself. And that kind of an emotional hollowness might be kind of what Otomo is trying to show to the Japanese youth through Akira. So that don't lose that emotional connection and don't don't follow that radical rebellion to the end because the world you might end up creating might be so hollow and so empty that you yourself don't want to live in it. At the end of the previous episode you said that this movie is definitely not without its problematic aspects and is there something in particular that you wanted to point out? Basically these two points. And also maybe the critique that the story might have against, like you said, also in Poland's case, the economic boom and the rise of capital thinking. Because once again, you know, if you look at the very end of the film, the Tetsuo's final, final form part, when Tetsuo, when he becomes to change, in lack of a better word, the whole proceeding starts when Tetsuo destroys the soul and combines the electronic equipment with his his lost arm. Tetsuo basically combines mechanical and biological, becoming the Neo Tokyo's first transhumanist <laughs> by that act, and that immediately backfires because what happens is Tetsuo becomes this uncontrollable mass. Of things that just, you know, swallow and consume everything. Tetsuo's attacks after he, the convulsion starts are that he launches his arm towards the general. Like, like he physically launches it and starts to, to convulse the general into him. Like, starts physically swallowing him. And 
in the end, the mass becomes so uncontrollable that it starts to hurt Tetsuo himself. It, it destroys Kauri, who did not want to die in the proceedings, but he no longer can actually stop it. He cannot stop himself, and he cannot stop the way how he is transforming. And seeing how, once again, Japan went from shampoos to economic growth during the 1980s, during that time there also was the race of the concern that that economical and technological boom that Japan was going through would or could lead into Japan forgetting its more traditional values and its kind of a more, more spiritual and nature-based value system to a point where that economical boom and, and capitalism which once again is portrayed as an evil power in the film since the general makes the notion that their politicians have become slaves to the capitalism. So, so there, there is kind of a, kind of this fear that capitalism and through transhumanism, the economical boom could consume Japan's cultural identity. <laughs> God damn it. No, I, I bet that's the best analysis psychologically of this film ever heard in podcast. I don't know about that, but you know, that's something that I kept looking at. When when that final shenanigans were going on. Yeah, e- extremely good connections that you're making. Well, thank you. Yeah, probably it's actually true that this is what Otomo was looking for. Or then, then it's just me, you know, overreading the, the proceedings and, you mm. know, seeing something that really is not there. Always, you know, in, in these situations, trying to decipher the authorical intent and something that, which is simply just a happy accident from the author's side, is very hard trick to pull off. At the very least, there is that uh, generational divide, definitely. Premiere and box office. Uh, the total of the film has crossed 49 million at the worldwide box office. The film then went on to earn 80 million worldwide from only home home video sales, if I understood this correctly. So we're going into the hundreds of millions, if that's correct. And to consider that the film's budget was only a measle 9 million, which was still the biggest anime budget at the time. Good job there. It was many times more than what, for example, had been Chipley's previous animated feature. Absolutely, Henrik, and there's also been video games made out of this film, or this manga. Which, which to my absolute shame, I have actually never played myself. Yeah, in 1988, Taito released Akira Adventure for Famicom in Japan, meaning Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES as we know it in Europe and the US. Also, International Computer Entertainment produced... A video game based on Akira for Amiga and Amiga CD32 in 94. Bandai also released Akira Psycho Ball, a pinball simulator for PS2. So there's been a bunch of attempts. I'm still waiting for like the new generation proper Akira game. Would be interesting to see. You could do, uh, I don't know if cell shading technique is still pop, but that could be perfect for this game. It could be. It's been surprising that nobody has touched the property. Well, I, I don't know. Counting from the PlayStation 1 days, during which I would have actually believed that there would have been an Akira 
video game to be made. But fear not, our listeners. I'm sure that it will happen when they actually punch out in some universe this live-action version of Akira that we have not yet talked about in this podcast. So it it's been in years of limbo, at least in the early... I think it's been in, in the making for like the last 10 years minimum. And it has always stopped at its tracks somewhere when somebody has exited the production or somebody is claiming that the production is whitewashing the original which is which is kind of a funny when you have you have the notion of well you have your black mannerheims and whatever you have on the other side of the aisle as we like to be politically correct in this podcast (laughs) on the other side of the aisle you have your black mannerheims and nobody bats an eye or even uh, I don't it, know. It, there, there, there was a huge convulsion over Black Mannerheim in Finland. Yeah, there was. The yeah, entire was. rest of the world did not even hear about what was going on. And if they would have, they would have not cared at the slightest. But god damn, was there a lot of crying over that one in Finland. Yeah, there was. Well, maybe we can do an episode on that. It would be extremely interesting. <laughs> but um, I have to say that uh, I do not understand this, why you have to do this. I mean, come on, if you're... Well, it's an adaptation, definitely. But then, why make the connection to the original character still? Why not try to break it even further, change the name Mannerheim to something else? Because you're not doing any more Mannerheim, you're doing something else in Kenya with a low budget just because you wanted to do it on the cheap. You actually, suckers. Actually, if I understood correctly, what was the aim of the project back then? Saving money. Well, yeah, of course, saving money. I mean, we are talking about Finnish film productions here. But also, on top of that, I heard that they were aiming to see what happens when, when you when you have a story. Like like Mannerheim, at this point, is also a story. As, as well as a historical figure, but he has been brought into such a level that Mannerheim itself is a story. So what happens when you take the story and... You give it to someone who has no idea or understanding whatsoever about the real historical figure. You just give him the, you know, the story. You just give him the raw material. And then are like, you know, hey, make a film out of it. And that in itself no. kind of, a, to me, sounds like an interesting experiment. Like what would happen to a culturally typed narrative, which is what Mannerheim is to Finns. When you give it to someone simply as a raw material and that someone does not have that, that shared cultural identity. Yeah, I actually have watched like a bunch of interviews that the film crew has done and the director and everything just came off as, you know, trying to force a real agenda for this film because we can do it on the cheap in Kenya, then we now have to figure out like a marketing story why we're actually doing it in Kenya and here we are giving it to this actor in Kenya and this is of course now our motivation that, to see that what would come out of that but I don't know I I don't think that that's that's why they are in Kenya yeah that also could of course be the case I I'm not denying that or or this just could be you know filmmakers wanting to make the film as cheaply as possible and also try to be edgy yeah, but in, it, it, in order to get all that sweet, sweet publicity. Yeah, yeah. But 
you know, I'm in a way, I'm extremely interested about this kind of experiment to be made with cinema as an art form, and yeah. kind of because of that, I'm I am somewhat willing to give the directors uh, and the you know the people behind the project a benefit of a doubt here. Yeah, I, I'm not, yeah. I mean, of course, you may be completely right. They may have been insidious as fuck when it comes to the proceedings. It's, but I don't know. You know, I in my case, it becomes down to me actually wanting to see this kind of an experiment to be done, and yeah. me giving them the benefit of a doubt because of that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, if the story originates. If Akira originates from Japan, anime has a Japanese characters, then if you're going to do it simply an, like a transformation for the big screen in live action of Akira, then you should have Japanese actors. If you're going to do a James Bond film, you're probably better off looking for people from the, the UK or, or in the nearby regions. Probably not from Australia, <laughs> probably not from, from Uganda. Uh, just saying, and probably if you're going to do, what should I say, if you're going to do a Romeo and Juliet, then you probably are going to do one with male and female. If you're going to do a Romeo and Romeo, then you need male and male, but you get the idea. But if you're going to just do the story with not even even an adaptation, really, just remaking the whole thing, then why change it? Yeah, I... I can see, once again, th th this is the over-enthusiast experimentalist in me talking, but I, I would kind of be interested in seeing, seeing these stories being taken out to different continents and giving them simply the bare bones minimum to make a film and just see what comes from that. Like, I would be actually, I would be interested in seeing, for example, Ugandan version of Akira. Or Ugandan version of the Unknown Soldier. Well, yeah, I guess. S just, just to see what, what, what happens. Like, what, what, what would they do if you give them the bare bones minimum? But depends, I guess, what kind of an Unknown Soldier would you make? The finished story played by Ugandan actors, or are you going to tell the some kind of a Ugandan war story with the name Unknown Soldier, which is going to be a more of a like original story or a Certainly a uh, adaptation that is a different story. Or, pff, if that makes sense. I, I would simply, you know, drop them... I guess I, what I would be interested in doing is drop them simply the script of the film, Unknown Soldier. Just hand that over to them and say, you know, this is all you get. You don't get the novel. You don't get to hear the cultural background that Finland and Finns have with the body of work. You don't get to see any of the previous films that have been made. You just get that fucking script and then you are like, yeah, it's you. You, know, you have free hand. Yeah. And then see how that film would actually divert from what we have in Finland. That That's fine. As long as, I guess, the actor of Ugandan origin is not trying to act a Finnish character. Like act as a Finn. To be a no, Finn. No, 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 God, no. That, w w once again, you know, that... That would, that, in my opinion, could endanger the project in sense that in doing that, I might give them some Finnish cultural background to play with. Like, I might give them more than the bare bones minimum. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, just saying that you cannot mix this any way you like. For example, doing a war movie, what could be a good example? You know, let's say <coughs> a Second World War story where... Saving who, where, 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 Private where, Ryan in Finland. Uh, for example. S- 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 saving, saving Private Rützöle. Yeah, or Polish actors playing Nazis and Germans playing Polish yeah, it is extremely tightrope to walk on, you know, when you try to make a film on the existing material that someone has already made outside of your own culture, because you are not automatically doomed to fail and to end up as inconsiderate jerk, but you very easily slip into that category. Let's get to the quickies. Favorite performance. <laughs> Well, depends which which performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which version? Which which audio track are we going with? Just your favorite from all of the three. My favorite from all of them. I guess I would go with Johnny Young Bosch, the English voice actor of Canada in the 2001 version of the film. And I I I know I know our goddamn podcast is gonna get burned to the ground for this one since I did not pick Mitsuo Iwata, but. You know, yeah, I'll lock down on Johnny Young Bosch. I will myself count only the Japanese version and go with Taro Ishida playing Colonel Shigishima in this film. He has a pretty strong voice, like definitely a, like a military type of a character. Very believable. I'll go with that. You are the culturally saving grace of this episode for us. You know? <laughs> Sugoi! <laughs> What's your favorite scene? I would say it is the horrific body transformation of Tetsuo at the oh. very end of the film. Yeah, I will go with Tetsuo in the hospital and the first teddy bear nightmare or vision as stated previously. The sperm teddy bears. Jesus Christ. Yeah, sperm teddy bears. <laughs> Favorite quote. I uh, would say the, you know... Uh, have to be quick here before you you pull this one under me. It is a part of dialogue from, from the film. Two persons having a deep discussion. Canada, Tetsuo, Canada, Tetsuo. <laughs> what else can you pick? <laughs> yeah, like we'll go with that. It's some, I, I, it's, I, it's it's cultural history that has to be remembered. I, I noticed you were forming the first vocals, and I quickly had to jump to the chance before you had to... <laughs> uh, f- favorite kill? Hmm. <sighs> On my end, and this is not a direct kill, goes more to a death scene, but... Mr. Nesu, when he dies on the side alley, it... Kind of a, in all the violence in the film, it, in my opinion best combines both the madness that goes around on the second half of the film and the incredible loneliness of these characters. I will go with the random guard that is the victim of Kay's bullet in the sewer systems. Because that had one of the biggest effects for me in this film. In the Japanese version, mind you. Not the uh, first American dub, unfortunately. That was a random pick, I must tell you. Okay. We didn't see that one coming. I would have kind of a 
thought that you would have gone with Tetsuo's first usage of his powers in the military complex when he accidentally kills the two guards and, and the one medic that has come to check on him. Mm, yeah, but it's kind of a, like a long shaft of the corridor and you don't see much, right? And then everything is, is just on the walls. Yeah, that it is. And now that you mentioned the impact case shooting the cop in the sewers is also, I guess, the act of violence which has the most profound effect on any of the characters in the film. Because that is something that really shocks Kay. Indeed it does. And then uh, first image just comes to mind from Akira. Oh, lots of imagery flying in my head. Well, uh, oh, wait. Let's do a reset button once again. <laughs> exactly remind our listeners how, how hard is it to find sake in Finland? I would say it's at this point it's even impossible. I guess because you know when anime first peaked in Finland in was it in early 2010s? I managed to find only one brand of sake in the local boo stores. It, it was distributed pretty widely in Finland. Like we have the one major chain, Alco, which pretty much has monopoly on any of the hard liquors. And, well, they stocked sake, and you could find it in pretty distant Alcos if you weren't looking for that, but you only managed to get one brand. And there weren't that many bottles to begin with, and pretty soon after that you know the sake just disappeared from the shelves and never returned at least so that i would have ever been able to find it again do you like sake yeah and no if i would wanna drink you know booze simply for you know drinking alcohol to, to have that sit down and relax moment and enjoy the alcohol. I would not pick sake because because the taste is so mild. At least for me and I guess for most Finns that you, you don't taste that much. In that sense like for example a glass of scotch or some well-made brandy is, is much better. But then again sake due to the taste of sake being so mild sake is also a form of alcohol that is extremely easy to go by. Like, you can basically just put sake, or take sake with anything, like, you can combine it with your food, or you can take some cheese and have sake with them, or some fruits and have sake with them. It's an all-around alcohol. I'm not even sure if I have ever touched sake, but uh, the Japanese sake, but I have touched on, I believe it's soyu from Korea, which is something similar. And which I came upon quite luckily because I was hosting a South Korean guest via this couchsurfing service. And he, as a present, gave me a bottle or two of soyu. It was just a, one green bottle and then the other like a non-colored bottle. And then you had to do something with this. You needed to mix them or something. Anyway, that's probably like the taste of the Japanese one. Okay, I on my head have never tried soyu. Yeah, well, first image that comes to mind. Basically the fireball at the end that eats everything. Or bunch of light. Yeah, I, w- I would also go with the second destruction of Tokyo. The one you see at the end of the film when Tokyo gets completely tarnished by the ball of light. Henrik, what took you out of this film? 
Nothing really. I, I mean, the sperm teddy bears sure as hell were stretching the line there for me. At that point, I was almost went like, oh my god, this is... Now, this is fucking silly. <laughs> In the end, it did not do that. Nothing took me out. Maybe I would have trimmed something. Maybe leave out the bar scenes regarding that show and his pills. You could have played the same idea in a different setting and not bring more subplots into the scene and confusing the audience. That you could have done. What pulled us in? A sperm teddy bear. To me, it's the opening chase scene when when the capsules attack the clones. Yeah, great energy there as well. It is, and the cinematography in that scene is fantastic. Scissors of Sacrilege. Uh, let's destroy Akira. <clears throat> no, or let's not. Uh, yeah, I would have trimmed something, because having two hours of this and mixing so many different kind of uh, subplots together and not explaining enough. Yeah, you could have done a bunch of editing. You could have cut the bar scene, put the context somewhere else. <sighs> you could have done something about the Roy and uh, Nezu relationship to flesh it out a little bit more. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, them trimming out the story is pretty much the source of all our complaining throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, th- this is a weird case where after all this complaining, I know exactly what is wrong with the film. It's it's basically that the film does not explain to you enough. Yeah, which is something that we take too easily in. We, we know that this is the style in the Asian films. That everything is not explained fully or everything is explained in such pace that you're, as an audience, not even surprised that you're not understanding everything. But the fact of the matter is here that there's elements missing. Yep. There, there are major elements missing and a huge lot of them. So in, in that case, it's extremely hard to say how to fix it, except make like a Lord of the Rings style extremely long extended version of the film where you stretch it out you know with an hour and a half or something like that or then just make it into a tv series make it into an anime series yeah did we look at our watch during this film well fair to say no what about hendrik i did not this is a film where you can't look at your watch or you lose the plot completely yeah oh boy oh boy oh boy <clears throat> well Go first, please. Henrik, would you recommend this film? Would you recommend Akira? I would. Akira is not my go-to anime. Like, if you would be new to anime and you would ask that first anime from me, I, I would not pick Akira. That would be Legend of the Overfiend. Just kidding, that's Tentacle Rape. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> my go-to anime would be the first Ghost in the Shell. Okay. But that, taken into notice... Akira still is a landmark film. It's extremely well made and in many ways it shows anime in its peak. Like what it can be when you let it freely be anything it can be and you you just pour in these huge resources. I, I would say that you most likely will never see as rich anime as Akira. And in that sense, and seeing how extremely influential Akira has been to 
basically all pop culture. I would say that Akira is mandatory watch. You have to see Akira at least once. Because everybody else has bloody well seen Akira and taken influence from it, so... Yeah. Would I recommend this film? Well, as mentioned, it's a huge influence on all the future cinema that followed. Is it the best anime film of all time? I don't know. But it from the beginning, even if you don't know the manga, you can sense that it has a very rich world. It has very built-out, fleshed-out characters. Sometimes, as mentioned at Nozim in this podcast, there are characters that are fleshed out, but you don't understand them fully because you don't have enough time to give them the full context. But you can tell that a lot of patience and care and love has been in this production. And it's a beauty to look at, you know, the colors. The colors, man, they... I don't know how well they strike at you from the VHS releases, but they definitely I can see it from, from my release on DVD. And great care in animation, you can see the background live more than in your average anime. But you can see that the lighting has been important. It's a visual fiesta once again. I enjoy looking at it. But as far as the plot, the plot is absolutely absurd. You know, there are no limits of what can happen in this film. Especially in the end. You don't, you still don't know exactly what the hell is going on. <sighs> I don't know if this is a strong film story-wise. Visually-wise, yeah. And it's important to see it as an inspiration for the future. But maybe as, like you said, like as a starting point to anime, perhaps not. I would say if you're going to watch this film, then maybe read the manga first, so you get the proper context. Without the context, you're kind of screwed with this film. You'll be just uh, scratching your head after it's over. And definitely there's a reason why the manga or anime fans say that you you need to read the manga, and then you probably want to watch the anime hundred times in a row. (laughs) Not only because of the visual fiesta, but because you always find some new things in it. But to recommend this film, yeah, I would recommend this film in a film history sense. Would I recommend it otherwise? Yeah, I would still recommend it. But it's, you know, it's not a glowing recommendation. I'm sorry, it's not gonna be a glowing recommendation, but recommendation nonetheless. Yeah, Akira is is an important case in the sense that it shows that you can be extremely influential and very important film and... In a way, you can be a masterpiece and still be quite flawed. Yeah, when you really get down to it. Maybe the thing is that pulls people into this film is the fact that it is so hard to get people think that, oh, it's a masterpiece because I don't get it on the first go, because there's so many layers to this film and look how beautiful it looks. But then again, I feel like, as you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who likes the films that are kind of boots on the ground, kind of easygoing, grounded, whereas here, and anything can happen, and it kind of, this kind of mystical, uh, overly science fiction-ish teleportation stuff, and telekinesis communicating with other people via their heads, it was never my cup of tea. I, on my end, quite loved all that. I myself, I enjoyed hugely about a lot of the craziness that happens in Akira. What part the experience for me the most was the, the lack of explanation on the background materials. Like all, all the factions and all the sides and how they kind of played off each other. And I guess that's been the reason why 
I've never really fell in love with Akira like I have, for example, fell in love with Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, this this Akira might be kind of hard to to convert into kind of a westernized version because, as you said, there's so many factions. Also, regarding this live action, there's been talks that somebody wanted to make it like a Kaneda is the brother of Tetsuo to make it more western, to make it more appealing to western audiences. And in a way, I get that, that's super cliche, but yeah, okay, you have to make it more simple if you're going to do the western version. I don't, I don't know, I mean, to me, that's oversimplifying. We ain't yeah. that dumb in the West. <laughs> I say no, and I have to take my words back when I see that the next Transformers sequel comes to cinema. <laughs> oh god, Transformers. <sighs> oh, you know, you don't really need your sleeping pill when you go see Transformers. Well, they are a visual fiesta, in a sense. And that's all it is. Just noise for two hours. Well, I would almost make the statement that you could find something even from Transformers. It may not be what, you know, Michael Bay had intended, and it may not be anything nice and pleasurable, but I would almost make the statement that there is something to be found, even in Transformers. And that is, don't go watch Transformers. Well, well, yeah, that that's kind of, kind of the... <laughs> that's the first notion you should make. Fuck it, Henrik. I'm rolling the outro if you are done. Go ahead, you know, don't go watch Transformers, go watch Akira instead. Yeah, amen. Next week, Henrik, what would it be? I guess it depends on whatever or not you actually managed to find a real-life Nazi to appear as a guest in the episode. Well, we're still looking for it. Oh, just kidding. We are not going (laughs) to give a pedestal for one, but we are going to give a pedestal for certain someone that has a fedora and likes to whoosh you once in a while. Next week, Henrik and dear listeners, grab your fedora and your whip. We're going to the jungle, baby. You most likely are going to die. Waiting for that one. Yeah, you know, we have gone through several classics from several classic directors and filmmakers. And we still have not touched on Mr. Steven Spielberg. It's about time. You can find us online, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Also, don't forget to get into our film challenge that is going on throughout 2019. We're going to watch 20 delicately hand-picked movies by me and Henrik. <laughs> 20 is an awful lot of films. It is. We have watched Apocalypse Now, Chunking Express, we have watched Pretty Village, Pretty Flame, and there's still 17 films to go. That's exciting. Next time we're going to Greenland. But next week, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. See you then. Da 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 da. And your on. We and your whip. Then Henrik had something about the video landscape or the visuals of this film. Jesus right. fucking Christ! Yes, I can do it again. Mene aika freestyler, motherfucker ronto meiningillä.